welcome back to the Hamster Book Club with me, your host, Joe Ford, and three distinguished gentlemen, hot off the press from the very popular Doomsday Weapon episode, Mr. Jason Thompson. Hello. Hello. Mr. Ian Winston. Hello. Hello. And Mr. James Lark. Hello. Hello. How are you doing, guys? Yeah, I'm, I'm good. Right. I'm oh. very well. Too I'm busy. Glad, uh, Busy, well, okay, right, we'll take it. Are you happy All to be talk things. talking about Doctor Who books today, Jason? Oh, yeah, always, always Ian? happy to be talking about Doctor Who anytime. Yeah, I am happy, although my my life has been non-stop Doctor Who from about five different angles this past month. But uh... Oh, he's frozen. Plus it's half term, and I've been watching Doctor Who with the kids, so it's just, oh, no, it's all right. You're I still with do. us. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, I was talking on my end, so you can splice it in. I know you uh, like to spend a long time editing. You can oh, splice my you own. cheeky shit. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say you've been time scooped off somewhere or something like that, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, so I was just saying, yeah, and it's also been half term. So I've literally, you know, they say, careful what you wish for. All I wanted when I was a kid was to do nothing but Doctor Who. And I've literally now, my life is nothing but Doctor Who. It's a massive <laughs> headache. <laughs> <laughs> Although I did go and watch five nights, I've just been to see Five Nights with Freddy's at the cinema, so that was non-Doctor Who. And, well, James, uh, you said that you was very busy at the beginning of the call. I'm uh, assuming uh, that's not Doctor Who related. It, uh, a lot of it is not Doctor Who related, though last night I took a school trip to a musical at Riverside Studios, which currently has this really good display of mostly photographs from Doctor Who, but they've got a really beautiful replica of the first TARDIS prop there. Mm. And um, most of the kids I took, I, I would say at the moment that there's not a massive Doctor Who contingent in my school, but they were really intrigued. And um, and I was I suddenly was fielding all these questions. What did the first regeneration look like? Um, there, there was a TV showing various kind of classic clips and they're saying, what's that story from? What's that a picture of? Oh, wow. Well, that's a hemivore uh, and explaining what that uh, was. So, yeah, I, I've had many Doctor Who related conversations uh, over the last 24 hours. You know what? They're all fans in the making. Some of them. I think it's, it's only from, a matter of time, you know? isn't it? Well, especially with what's coming up as well in four weeks time. They would. I, I uh, they genuinely. Some of them were very much like. So, so, can we watch any of these? And I said, "Well, BBC uh, iPlayer is about to drop <laughs> a whole load of this stuff. So, yeah, you can." Yeah, school teachers are the best marketers they can have. I'm telling you. <laughs> well, fellas, we are here today to talk about the Crooked World by Steve Lyons. I just want to say, as a disclaimer. I am going to be pushing away from the Eighth Doctor books eventually. I do currently have um, a Target, Dalek, a past, uh, sorry, a missing adventure, Time of Your Life, and a past Doctor adventure, Verdigree, all in the pipeline. Unfortunately, it's all down to availability that we've just done Alien Bodies, Father Time, and now The Crooked World on the Bounce. Um, but before we talk about The Crooked World... I would like to, first first time round, I asked you what your first Doctor Who book was. I'd like to ask all three of you now what your favourite Doctor Who writer in prose is. And I'd like to start with James. Um, My favourite Doctor Who writer in prose. I haven't, it's not a very, I'm going with heart rather than uh, logic. I think it's Ben Aronovich. Ooh. Um, and that's partly a nostalgia thing. That's partly because Remembrance of the Daleks was one of the first Target books I got. And 
obviously kind of now I know that it was one of the books that slightly changed, oh, it sort of pushed towards new adventures, but it changed the format of the target novelizations. It was one of the first ones to introduce um, character details, subplots, you know, extra information that, that wasn't in the television series. Uh, and and it, it remains a cracking good read. I'm also kind of very familiar with Ben Aronovich's more recent series of um, best-selling Rivers of London novels so i can't it's very difficult to talk kind of dispassionately about uh this i just think he's a really entertaining writer and you know everyone loves the also people but i also love transit so there we go that may be a future episode then <laughs> no, i'm gonna sounds... throw in since you've mentioned them i'm going to throw in a recommendation to anyone who's read who's listening who hasn't read them yet do go and pick up the rivers of london mm. series they are absolutely superb uh, you do kind of have to read them in order though so um, you do but it's but i think but it pays off as works. a series in a yep. way that a lot of series feel like they're contractual obligations with aronovich you always know that you're getting a really well researched book every one of the rivers i mean every one of the rivers of london books takes a, a, a kind of a focus that the the early ones are very much focused around london the first one's based mm. on london's theaters and theater land um the second one is about uh london's jazz venues um and it's it, it it's really clear that he's a fastidious researcher you never feel that you're being kind of fed a, a sort of invention of his own um imagination when he goes into so so if you're not familiar with the series rivers of london is the the, the idea is that the met have a much neglected magic department and it's basically kind of one old man and no one takes him very seriously and in the first book uh, peter grant a young police officer is recruited into this uh, because he experiences something supernatural and it's written with this very compelling sense of what it would actually be like if the met had a slightly embarrassing department of <laughs> two or three people dealing with magic something they don't really want to acknowledge exists but they can't get rid of the department because clearly every now and then something completely bonkers happens and it's the only department they have to deal with these things but when they do police procedural you absolutely know that they are going through the things in exactly the way the met would go through these things if they encountered something without any explanation and the fact that the magic the magic occurrences all have their roots in historical events and characters from history and places um, gives it all a, a you know a verisimilitude that i think is very um appealing to uh well to to me as someone who I, I i'm a little bit impatient with fantasy i'm a little bit impatient when when the rules are not clear in a in a piece of writing here i have no i never have doubt the world that we're occupying yeah, Never mind the crooked world. Let's talk about that instead. That sounds amazing. I'm, you know, um, I'm, off, I'm off this week, so I might go out. I've just seen a load of them in Warsaw's today, so I might go and grab one. Yeah, grab same one. here, Emma. I've been one. told by so many people to read them, and yeah. every time I'm like, oh, one day I'm going to be told, and I'll, like you, I'll just suddenly actually see them for sale and go for it. I know quite a few people <laughs> out of the genre as well that are reading those books because they're just really well-written books. Yeah, they they they're right really good. And they... they they, they as as james said brilliantly researched so you really feel like this is properly believable uh the landmarks and road even down to you know i took this route to get there because of everything else yet you could do that you can do a rivers of london tour of london because he goes to various places oh. uh, mm. one of them was in a 
it ended up in a, um, a warehouse in industrial estate in Gillingham, which I know very well. So, you know, there's all sorts of <laughs> things like that. But also it eskews a lot of the, the fantasy tropes. It's like Peter Grant, the, the main character, isn't some chosen one with magical skills that he was born with mysteriously. The idea is everyone can do magic, but it's A, it's dangerous and detrimental to your health if you do too much of it. And B, you have to actually be taught how to do it properly. And though, so there's all kinds of all kinds of really, really fantastic world building in there. And it's hilarious because he also throws in loads of references to other sci-fi fantasy tropes. There's one book is very heavily based around Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy okay. things, for example. Yes. Yeah. So because Peter takes an undercover role in a in a in a place called the Sirius Cybernetics Corporation. <laughs> oh, nice. And, and uh, there's a reference to a police box being a place where you know you can lock up a police, you can lock up a prisoner, or call the Met, or uh, maybe get whisked off into time and space. You know, that kind of thing. So, so there are a few, there are yeah. there are references in there that some of them are really obvious, and some of them, if you know, you know, but they don't detract from the rest of the story. So yeah. But anyway, we're not here to talk about Rivers of London. Oh, so, but I was going to say, uh, you know, the Hamster Rivers of London book club starring James Ian and Jason will be coming to this any podcast <laughs> catcher very just, um, soon. I'm going to go and buy them. It yeah, sounds, like, sounds kind of like uh, Neverwhere meets the X-Files. or Very similar to Neverwhere. Or In some ways, an easier read, though. He's got such an... Uh, a natural prose style and it is very witty it's very funny oh it's hilarious in places. With I've, his, I've um, laughed out loud on several, yeah, brilliant, yeah, yeah. brilliant writer yeah with his also people because i just adore that book it's such a gentle book like it's not it's very not the new adventures in a lot of ways and yet it's so gripping i i couldn't put it down i read it all in one go uh, it's the also fantastic. people the one with the dyson sphere that's mm, yeah, yeah so, so yeah I remember that really clearly, which is a sign that I enjoyed it. There's a well, point in the also people which I didn't where with all of the new adventures. <laughs> there's, there's a point in the also people where where the plot suddenly kicks in, and you almost have a feeling of yeah, oh, oh. what a shame. Yeah, I was enjoying that. <laughs> I, I was really enjoying hanging out. <laughs> well, Ian, your favourite Doctor Who writer in prose. I mean, it's hard to pick one, obviously, but. We were just talking off mic, and I, I actually think Paul Cornell, um, but he's one who I'm going to pick today. But I guess it's because I also have a sort of personal connection-ish in that I went to the same uni as him, and he came in, he graduated the year I arrived, uh, the, the year before I arrived. So because he'd written New Adventures, and I did creative writing, the same course as he'd done, and then... My tutor who taught him found out I liked Doctor Who said, well, here's his. And that's how I kind of weirdly found out about the new adventures in 91 because Paul, Paul Cornell had written them. And then he came into, I, I mean, I've, I've said this too many times on probably too many podcasts, but, uh, but it's just a weird how Doctor Who comes into your life. I was 19. I dreadlocks and smoked weed and hadn't really thought about Doctor Who in a long time, just as in a sort of, in a sort of weird, uh, it was a kind of weird, uh, weird thing I used to do as a kid, and secretly liked, but didn't talk to anybody. And Paul Cornell came in the day I got an acceptance letter from Gary Russell, saying my brief encounter had been accepted. And so, then Paul Cup came in. I said I showed him a letter, and so Paul's going, "Oh, fellow traveller, brilliant!" So we had a pint afterwards, and then I sort of said to him, "So, um, how do I actually get paid for this?" And so Paul said. 
Paul said, well, you send him an invoice. And I was 19. And I just said, what's an invoice? Um, that's how naive I was. So my first invoice was to Gary Russell, who I now work with. Thanks to Paul Cornell, who I kind of now know from going to cons and stuff as well. So it's just weird. But um, but just as a just as a writer, um, I think I think we'll talk about this a bit when we talk at Crooked World. The tone of Doctor Who as it changed, as it became taken over by angsty fanboys for the new adventures. <laughs> I didn't get on with it quite often, and I always felt Paul understood, which is why of all the new adventures I've still sort of I didn't chuck away or didn't send to charity shop when I was younger. I've still got love and war because I read that over and over again. It was serious and dark, but it didn't ever, to me, feel like... I don't remember it ever having stuff in it that I didn't think should be in Doctor Who. Like in Crooked World, there's a few bits, which is I enjoyed it, which we'll get onto. I think tone in Doctor Who, I'm the same with Torchwood. I, you know, Torchwood is, you know, by itself a good thing. But as part of the Hooniverse, I think it goes too far. I don't think it's accessible to its core audience, so therefore... It is wrong and naughty in my eyes. <laughs> There's only one question I want to ask you about your personal connection with Paul Cornell. Is has yeah. he always had that unnaturally deep voice? Uh yes, as far as I can remember. Yeah. He sounded like Paul Cornell. He's, I've been uh, trying hard to best him, but I can't get there, you know. Yeah. I mean, I've got quite a deep voice myself, but uh yes, he has a very deep voice. Sonorous is the word, maybe. Jason, what is your favorite <laughs> Doctor Who writer in prose? Well, I mean, I can't believe we've got this far and no one's mentioned Terence Dix yet. I knew so... someone was going to pull out <laughs> Terence Dix. But I'm not going to go for Terence Dix because that's, that's oh. almost too obvious. Um, Maybe that's why we none of us went for Terence Dix. No, too, it's just either. a given, isn't it? Well, I mean, he was the man who taught us to read. I mean, the thing about Terence Dix's work is a lot of it is excellent. Some of it is workmanlike because he just has to plow through and get these things out so there's the varying degrees of quality what i'm going to go for is my favorite author um is ian martyr oh good choice so ian martyr novelized nine classic doctor who serials and i've got five of them in my collection i'm gradually building up my target collection again um he novelized the ark in space which was my first ever doctor who book as anyone who was listening to the previous podcast will remember <laughs> uh but he also novelized um the ones i've got here the the enemy of the world controversially included the word bastard in it mm. uh, the dominators the ark in space the sontaran experiment earth shock and i can't remember what the other four were off the top of my head because i don't have them but what i like about his style is that he really goes in for um he sort of unsanitizes a lot of what happens in those stories they're still perfectly acceptable for children to read um they were in my school library um but he adds layers to them like for example the descriptions in the ark in space of noah being taken over by the wirren are really amazing um his head split open with a crack and things like that you know <laughs> bubbling pus in in Earthshock, he describes the cyber leader and the cybermen as having a kind of oily vapor coming out of their chest unit that made them. Um, you know, really Kids love that stuff, don't they? Around. Kids love all the of dominators that. Dominators are, are said to have like oily breath and look like cadavers and sunken eyes and everything else. So he really goes in for it, and he's not shy about when people get shot in Doctor Who because in Doctor Who, people get shot. People, someone points a gun at you, and unless you're Condo in the brain of Morbius. 
someone shoots a gun at you and you fall over and that's it. Whereas I remember vividly in The Enemy of the World, he describes a line of red dots going up Faria's back when she gets shot. Enemy of the World is brutal. That I remember reading that. I was at a, a airport cafe and I was reading I just kept saying to my other, this is... I'm not sure if this is appropriate for kids. It's brutal and it's visceral, that book. Yeah. Well, that's his style. It's what he does with all of the books. He makes them... You know, because I mean, Doctor Who deals with situations which are brutal, mm. but it's in a sanitized Saturday tea time fashion. So, you know, there's not a lot of blood and there's not a lot of actual damage. So, I mean, you, you, Ian Martyr will talk about, you know, crunching bones and things when people are being, you know, the, the bit in Earthshock where the doctor um, puts. Adric's badge into the cyber leader's chest he goes on about how agonizing it is for the doctor because he's having his arms crushed by the cyberman at the same time but he's still hanging on desperately trying to get this to <laughs> to work so yeah so that ian martyr for for taking these stories novelizing them brilliantly fleshing them out in some cases his novelization of the sontaran experiment is much different from how it looks on screen um so yeah really really good stuff so he's my favorite I hadn't realised that he novelised Earthshock. Yes. Which makes total sense. What a great match of story and writer. I mean, it's brilliant. I found it's one of my my early Doctor Who novelizations from my school library. And then when I saw it on my first VHS as well, I thought this is actually really, really good. So the fact that you managed to take a hold of The Rescue and The Dominators and turn both of those into gripping novels. Oh, the Dominator is, is a superb novel, yes. I think the rescue is as well. And it, it doesn't skimp the page count either. It just gives you a lot of backstory, doesn't it? Yeah. I was torn between two very subversive writers. Lawrence Miles, who is yeah, a bit of a nutcase these days, but he <laughs> I think he's the writer that got closest to writing genuine sort of science fiction novels in Doctor Who and did things with massive art. I just remember reading his books when I was younger. And I could feel my mind expanding with the the amount of ideas that he put in Doctor Who. But also Paul Mars as well, who I think is subversive in a really different way, in a camp, funny, very clever, but he makes it seem very effortless. You read one of his books and it's such an easy read, but you pull it apart and he's doing a lot of work sort of under the surface. So I, I couldn't choose between the two of them. I, I don't think I've read a book by either of them that I didn't love. Uh, which is why I've sort of covered a few of those already on here. But yeah, well, I think we've got some brilliant... Am, am I right in thinking they are both... They Both of those authors were very much associated with the, the Eighth Doctor adventures? Which is my type. I think Lawrence Miles came in with Christmas on a Rational Planet with the new adventures. Yes. Um, which is like the only Doctor Who book where the TARDIS saves the day of his own volition. It was a wonderful book. Then he did a... Benny book called Down, and then he he did Alien Bodies and stuck with the Ape Doctors after that. So I ought to fess up and say that I I I'm not very familiar with the EDAs. I've been very I've been very much (laughs) enjoying your podcasts on them, and it's made me want to to read more of them. But um, my uh, uh, my my history with Doctor Who fiction is that uh, when the new adventures started coming out, all I wanted was a, a new series on television. The last thing I wanted, <laughs> I wanted as a young teenager was, uh, was stories that were too broad and sexy for the screen or whatever it was. So um, it took me a while. It was a long time before I got on board with those. But when I did, I, I think it was Shakedown was the first one I read. I thought these are brilliant. 
And then they um, discontinued the series and started bringing out these new BBC books with butt ugly covers. And I and, and I just couldn't <laughs> get on board with them. And I wasn't a massive fan of the TV movie for, again, ob- like obvious teenager reasons. It didn't do what I was wanted Doctor Who to do. So I, I, I wasn't invested in getting into these books about Paul McGann's Doctor. Um I was sort of kind of catching up on the new adventures at the time. And, well, I, to, and I do, I mean, I maintain that I think kind of the, um, to this day, if you see a new adventure in a charity shop, you have to buy it. Even if it's the pit by Neil Penswick. You have to buy it. Um, <laughs> You'll feel dirty. I, I, but yeah. <laughs> I know that, I know that objectively a lot of the new adventures actually don't quite live up to that sheen, but they're very, you know, it's the white spines and the, the, the hand-drawn covers. And I think that they, they were going through a phase in the mid nineties of just, they discovered Photoshop or whatever kind of professional equivalent there was, you know, they did it with the VHS range as well. Mm. Suddenly they're bringing out these just messes of kind of color and someone's, you know, Base found a new setting and they yeah. can, yeah, and and smudge Tom Baker's face into it. Everything yeah. looked awful for a while. What's yeah. been In lovely? Ninety-seven, of... they got the, the company called Black Sheep to do the uh, the covers and to get uniformity across the range. They got them to do the books, the missing, the the past Doctor Adventures, the Eighth Doctor Adventures, and the VHS. And for a period, there was like, right, we stick a swirly pattern on the front, and then we Photoshop some characters in the front of it and some of them are absolutely dire yeah absolutely grotesque yeah. and with this hot with this awful version of the logo which you know before we're, we're looking at a book now which has got the um the later version where they made it look better but it was a sort of hand-drawn swishy thing which didn't match yeah the photo i'm glad they went either. back to the when they when they got that and turned it into the one that looks like it did on the screen rather than yeah. some the weird thing about the black version. sheep covers is you're right they did start off really ugly and they were hit and miss when they hit with stuff like Year of Intelligent Tigers, which is a picture of a tiger's eye with Paul McGann's face reflected into it and things like that, they were amazing. But it was just like, I just felt like they didn't have enough time. And every now and again, accidentally, they created a fantastic cover. Mm. Yeah, I think it took them a while to find their, to, to hit their stride. Like, do you remember yeah. Drift, where it was just the TARDIS in the snow with the foot, foot, footprints going towards oh, the snow? Oh, yeah. No, that's, that's a, a lovely beautiful picture. cover. Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah. Oh, Father Time with the little girl in the snow. And it's just... Yeah. The, yeah. That's cool. I really enjoy, I must listen to the Father Time one actually because I really enjoyed that book when I read it. Yeah, but well, back to just mentioning Paul Paul Mars because um, I, I know him vaguely from Manchester. Um, but um, uh, his his uh, his sort of Mag- his sort of Eighth Doctor stuff. He's he did some brilliant stuff for Big Finish as well as you'll know, Joe, yeah. being a big finisher. But his um, McGann was on stage in Manchester um, at a, a con we had here just before about a year before COVID and somebody said, uh, what's your, you know, all your eight, of all your big finish, what's your favorite? And he went, Oh, I would definitely say Paul Mars is uh, horror of glam rock. And Paul Mars was in the audience. So they got him up to, uh, and he was just oh, like, Oh, wonderful. So I mean, it's just a wonderful thing to say. He, he sort <laughs> of stepped into a, a relatively safe period of books and wrote the Scarlet Empress. That was his first, which was, yeah, yeah to date the most sort of fantasy novel of Doctor Who you're ever going to find it's absolutely yeah. gorgeous it's oh, like... he's, got, it's, he's left left field doesn't do Paul's writing justice really does it it's it's then left he, left field then he had the nerve <laughs> to do the blue angel with Jeremy Hode where yeah. um he got to the climax of that book and he likes playing about with narrative so instead of mm. giving you a climax to that book 
uh, Iris Wildtime pulls the Doctor out of the climax, and the last page is twenty questions uh, where you make up your own climax. So it's it's, it's basically <laughs> you you figure it all out yourself. Then he went on to do Mad Dogs and Englishmen, which is the one with the big pink poodle on the cover, which yeah. is a one. We talked about that, haven't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think Jason's having a terrible fight with his cat here. <laughs> You're right, Jason. Yeah, fine. She picks her moments. <laughs> yeah. um, well, guys, thank you very much. Lots of great authors there and loads for people to go out and explore if they haven't already. So, The Crooked World by Steve Lyons. I, I was wondering how on earth we could start talking about this unique Doctor Who story. And I think I'm going to throw it out to one person and say, tell me how you would describe The Crooked World. And we'll go from there. Last time you guys just picked it up and just ran with a conversation. So let's ask Ian. Describe the um, cricket world for us, please. Well, I was going to say before that, uh, this is my introduction almost almost to Eighth Doctor, this range. So I'll talk more about what it's like reading this as one of the first ones because it's it's an unusual book. But it is um, a standalone, isn't it? Which is It is supposed to be a standalone, it. but we can talk about how well that it maybe works as a standalone. As an actual adventure, it works as a standalone. Maybe with the companions, not so much. Um but um, but yeah. So the TARDIS materializes on a world which is basically we soon discover populated with Saturday, Saturday morning American, American animation. So we have the Scooby Gang, we have Porky Pig, all all with uh, all without their real names, but with close approximation. So you know who you're seeing, um, and it kind of goes from there. And one of the brilliant things at the beginning is. You have the Porky Big character who's called Streaky Bacon, and he opens fire on the Doctor, and he's absolutely gobsmacked that his blunderbuss works, and the Doctor is peppered with shot and bleeding and drops to the floor, apparently dead, but obviously he's the Doctor, so he's not dead, spoiler alert. Um, It'd be a but, great um, pre-shot yeah. sequence, that, wouldn't it, with the Doctor being shot at the end? Cue music. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, 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 it's brilliant. Uh, it's brilliant, but that's, that's its basic... That's its basic thing, and I was one of the first things I was going to say, Joe, as uh, as our adjudicator, is uh, is when can we start talking about spoilers? Because it's almost impossible to talk about this at length. I think without this book spoilers. has been out for twenty years now. Off yes, you go. but I would, but but like with some of your podcasts, I I find myself going actually, I want to, I do want to read that book. So, the trouble uh, is, how do you discuss a book? Without discussing yeah. a book, so you just you have to say spoil. You just have to say spoiler alert. Let's be so honest. This book has already been. This book has already been slightly spoiled by its cover, something which I think we will discuss more <laughs> yeah. later. Yeah. Well, well I, I don't. I don't think. I don't think it's a spoiler to say where, where the TARDIS lands. But no, no, no. Off you go. Go it's on fine. as we go on. But okay, yeah, so well then, if you want me to say it, I will say it for you. I just, spoiler uh, alert, everybody. I just don't when you get in the complaints, Joe. Oh, you know I what, Doctor? I can ride them. Don't worry. Oh, I can't believe it. <laughs> Joe Ford spoiled the crooked world for me only twenty years after it was written. Yeah, that, that would <laughs> just make my enjoyment of this book just a little bit greater, if I'm honest. <laughs> yeah, but um, but yeah, but um, but but well, as a as an actual thing, I've never been. It's almost like I want to skip right to the end 
first to say, so this really is a spoiler alert, to say I've never been more glad that it turned out to be not just a cartoon world. The doctor's explanation near the beginning made me go, oh, I don't put my teeth on edge as a, as a, no, no, they can't really just be a cartoon world. I don't like that. That was that was my initial thing. I've never been more glad for the destination this book ends up at in, in my life. And it is literally right at the end of the book as well, isn't it? It is. It is. It is. And uh, and uh, and I'd say much as I, much as I, uh, I have to do full disclosure. I'm uh, Steve Lyons. Um, I, I've recently discovered he's actually a cutaway writer as well. He's writing a happiness patrol strip. Um, so, but I'm not just saying that because of that. But he's a brilliant writer, and I do like this book. But I, but it's a book from 20 years ago, and there are we're here to discuss its ins and outs, and I and I, I like it a lot. But there were there were things I would maybe it's weird you have your editor's head on. I'd go well, there's things I'd maybe have just seeded in a bit earlier, or because to me I was like, oh my god, they really are just on a cartoon world planet, and that's doing my head in personally. I don't know what you guys felt. Did you were you distressed by that idea? Or was it just me? I've, I really struggled with that. Uh- I'm not entirely sure that we're not on a cartoon world. The ending's pretty ambiguous, and and we're, it's we're on a cartoon world for a reason, though. Yeah, yeah, a, it does give us a reason. Amy's, I'm, Amy's I'm crack, not, isn't it? I'm not denying that. The, but <laughs> the reality, the rules of the world, there's there's never really an explanation given for for the way that the rules of this world work, which is very much like the rules in a Saturday morning cartoon. If yeah. you run off a cliff, as long as you don't notice that you run off a cliff, you continue to pedal the air, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, rules that we all understand because we've all seen those shows. I I was really questioning myself a, a lot over this. I've just finished watching Enlightenment, mm-hmm. uh, which which I think is a, a high point of the Davison era. And at no point does it bother me that there are eternal beings flying around space in sailing boats, which is as ridiculous a reality as a cartoon world. So. I'm not entirely sure why I can deal with that, but I can't deal with a reality being the, the two-dimensional reality of a Saturday morning cartoon show, except that. And I think this is the 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 reason that I struggled with it. It's a it's a very referential reality. It's a reality that bases that is based in uh, rules uh, and um, figures that we uh, know from cartoon shows that we've seen and as you say short of using the actual names porky pig and you know the scooby guy they are recognizable characters from that i think that's the thing for me it seemed to me that when you've got a world that is referencing all these things that we all already recognize um when you've got jokes like the animation cells which are you know places where people are held it's so Mm. referential we're in kind of roger rabbit territory yeah and roger rabbit of course works because it embraces you know it it treats those cartoon characters as real and the joke is those cartoon characters are all kind of film stars who actually film the cartoons but they have a real life beyond that um this doesn't quite give us that dimension we are supposed to take basically at face value the fact that they have walked into a cartoon and the rules of um, of gravity and physics are therefore completely different. Yeah, it's uh, I I found it interesting because I think it's um it goes it goes to some lengths to tell you that you're not in a two dimensional world. This isn't you know suddenly we're not in a cartoon as such. Um, everything acts as if it's in a cartoon, but it's still very solid, very real. Um, 
and there's kind of no it's it kind of falls back on the uh, thing that the new series has done a couple of times which is in an infinite universe impossible things just happen and it's like it's just it happens that this planet that they've landed on this world that they've landed on it's it's never really explicitly spelled out but it seems there's some kind of world that's very susceptible to outside influence and a child arrives Hmm. and the child is full of cartoon ideas and so they shape the world around them into what the doctor and angie and fitz arrive in and then the adults turn up and everything goes to shit basically (laughs) Um, because suddenly and i it's it's kind of a it's almost like these characters all grow up because they start off with a child's interpretation of the world. People f- don't fall off cliffs automatically. And I love the fact that the characters begin to use the physics of the world to their advantage. Um, spoiler alert, there's an escape at one point where the doctor tells Fitz to close his eyes and just run in that direction. <laughs> and when they open their eyes, they find they've run over a ravine, but because they didn't know it was a ravine, they got straight yeah. over it. Um and then the adults come in and start with their concepts of death and sex, <laughs> which I could have done. I could have done talk, without can, that. That's a whole section. Yeah, to uh, talk about. I, I fucking love that. that bit. <laughs> I love that bit. I'd say I, I, I thought that was really, really funny. I thought funny, that was but... Doctor Who rejecting the new adventures sort of sex by <laughs> yeah. having her have no sex. Anyway, go on. Sorry. Yeah. So they bring in their ideas. And so the world has to um, adapt to a new situation. Um, but in doing so, there are some really shockingly dark moments. Ooh, but it's oh, not yes. really... It's kind of just... This is this world that exists and is just heavily influenced by whatever happens to land on it. First, it was a child. Now it's the Doctor, Angie and Fitz, and they've brought their concepts to the world and they've had to work them into their society and move on. But you do kind of get the impression, well, what happens when the next spaceship lands on that world? Because that is just going to be disastrous. That person's (laughs) been watching all series of Breaking Bad or something like that. What on earth is going to be going on in that world after that? Yeah, so it's a... But I like the idea. It's kind of... I did think about, you know, Roger Rabbit. Roger Rabbit is the obvious connection here because the the tunes are real and also the element of roger rabbit when eddie valiant goes into toontown the physics of toontown apply to him there's a sequence where he gets squished like a pancake when an elevator shoots up really quickly he falls from a great height but because it's a cartoon he gets caught at the bottom and he's absolutely fine he doesn't go splat on the ground or anything like Mm. that so and again he is able to use the rules of the cartoons against the characters like when he's being chased he, he rips up the white line on the road and directs it into the wall and the character follows the white line on the road instead. So that the, the influences are all very heavily here. But as James says, the fact that they are so recognisable, immediately at the beginning, you've got a cross between Porky Pig and Elmer Fudd. Very obviously the Roadrunner. Um, wacky Races. Gang. You've got Wacky yeah. Races, Penelope Pitstop. And- Tom and Jerry. Tom and Jerry. Yeah. And so the fact that it is so obviously these recognizable characters, I think kind of makes it a little harder to get into. Like you there say, is you say that though. When when then things start to change, the fact that I could visualize Tom and Jerry. So yeah. the sequence where Squeak is killed, 
I could see poor old Jerry in his hand with his head being bitten yeah. off. I could absolutely visualize that. It was yeah. horrible. Yeah, I, I, I didn't mind. I didn't mind it. What I didn't have a block on them being the characters that we could visualize. I kind of like. I was. I was like you, Joe, with that. The the, the bit I. I would, if I, you know, if we could go back in time and just, and maybe have a little few notes to the thing, I would say what comes at the end feels very much like bang. This is what's been happening all along. It was woke up and it was all a dream, kind of it's, level. It's more like sort of like oh, Doctor Who fans are going to need an explanation. And and, 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 I, the and, and and the thing is, they're not wrong because. You know, all three of us were there going, what? No, no. Oh, yes. I'm so sorry. I'm going to contradict all of you because I had no issues at all with no, no, well, stepping well, into a cartoon world. But that's because I'm still a child now. So, <laughs> but, but, but for me, what, what worried me reading it, I always, for me, it was like, it was like sleeping with one eye open. I was there going, I'm enjoying this, but it better not turn out to just be a world full of cartoons. Um, and I didn't like the fact that the doctor said, well, there's an infinite universe anything is possible because that made it that's that was almost like the the author saying this is what's happened because we're not discussing it again well angie says bit, at some point that, in that... the book she goes uh, well, we've just been on a planet because a few uh, books back we had grim reality which was grim's fairy tales come to life on a planet called alpha yeah, yeah. and she goes well we keep going to these weird planets and like yeah well, that's just what justin richard fancies doing this week that's why yeah sorry yeah. cool james no, you're yeah, trying to say yeah, something well, i was i was gonna i just wanted to clarify i didn't have a problem with the the um characters clearly referencing um, cartoon characters that we recognize I, I think that's probably a strength because as joe says you you can visualize it very very easily i think it, that carries over into the discussion about how easily we accept this world because they're recognizable characters we're being asked to accept that doctor who has stepped into a you know a recognizable cartoon world of um hannah barbara and um and looney tunes it, it it's also i mean given that we I think, you know, there's a town in this book called Zany Town, which, you know, it's so close to Toontown, it's asking for comparisons. I mean, I think knowingly, I have to say one of the strengths of this book is it's utterly fearless. I think Steve mm-hmm. Lyons absolutely knows that when he writes Zany Town, you know, everyone's going to think, oh, that's like Toontown and Roger Rabbit. He's not afraid of those comparisons. He's not afraid of us kind of seeing these these things. And everything about this book is sort of gung-ho and, and fearless in that way. Um but Roger Rabbit does get to kind of have its cake and eat it in that it gets to call those characters by name and treat those characters like they're real, but also then real beyond those cartoons. With this, we're sort of starting from scratch. We have to build up this world and and they don't have that extra dimension. I mean, Roger Rabbit is is one of its strengths is that it's not a cartoon world. It's a film noir world with cartoon characters in it. Whereas this is Doctor Who stepping into a cartoon world, which I think is quite a different proposition. Yeah, I, I think tone-wise, and this is a I've got problems with the tone of this book in another way as well, which we'll come on to. But I think tone-wise, Doctor Who is not Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So if it steps into anything is possible, we can have talking sofas and stuff. If there's a talking sofa in Doctor Who, I'd I'd do my nut. Whereas if it's in Hitchhiker's Guys of the Galaxy, I'm absolutely fine. Oh, Ian, it's... when did you grow up? What a shame. I know. But I Douglas know, Adams but... would have found a way to explain all of this. Mm. He, he would you have been away absolutely kind of, well. everything would have been but... explained. I love the idea of a talking sofa. I, I'm just, i just forever glad. I love Douglas Adams. I'm forever glad we got to see the Cricket Men plot. 
as a hitchhiker's book, not as a Doctor Who story, as it was. It's a talking mattress, theme. isn't it? Is it talking mattress? Yeah, no, yeah, you're it's right. It's a talking mattress, <laughs> mattress and, a, yeah. and a disappearing sofa. Yeah, and a, and a bit. Yeah, yeah. I'm getting my uh, getting my getting you know, your furniture all, mixed up. You've all yeah. referenced um, Roger Rabbit. Mm-hmm. The film this most reminded me of was Pleasantville. I don't know if any of you have seen that, but that's a yeah, film yeah. Uh, about. Well, a... Came out at the same time as Truman Show, so it kind of got lost in the in the. Truman Show. It's a phenomenal film. It's a 1950s sitcom which two modern day teens get beamed into and Mm -hmm. throughout start infecting the innocence of this sitcom world with sex Mm. and violence and all of that. And it all accumulates in a massive court case scene where they're railing Mm. up against the deviants that are trying to change the world. And that exact scene happens in this book. So I don't know. I'm not sure which one came out first. Eva the... Truman Show is nineties. Oh, okay. Truman Show is before Truman Show is before Big Brother because I remember reviewing it, Truman Show, and going, "Well, it seems a bit far fetched because uh, because people are literally watching them on watching them sleep and things like that on the green thing." And then I remember just going, <laughs> "Watch, I'm doing the Truman Show when Big Brother was like on my laptop in the corner of my room at a party, and we couldn't With... turn Big Brother off, um... and we were watching." We were basically watching somebody sleeping on the green, you know, the night, the night vision, just like in Truman Show. And Truman, so Truman Show knew humans better than uh, we knew ourselves. Pleasantville was yeah. mid nineties because it's Reese Witherspoon and Tobey Maguire before yeah, yeah, they were well, famous. I remember, so I'm old, I'm 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 old enough to. I went to see Pleasantville at the cinema, and I went mm. to see Truman Show. So they were around the same time. I'd say Jason, that. now it looks like you're trying to say something. Off you go. Going to say Pleasantville was 1998 and the Crooked World was 2002. So. Yeah. So Steve Lyons went to the cinema. We can we've established Ooh, that. You'll yeah. have to ask him. <laughs> yeah. The court case scene was the one was one that in when I was reading it, it didn't really grab me. I know it's supposed to be a sort of pivotal moment, but it's oh, basically it reminded me of reaction. Killer Mockingbird as well, which is, it, it, it which is well, okay. Let's ask Jason why didn't it and James why yeah, yeah. did it? Uh, because. I mean, for me, it was just the doctor going, yeah, here's how the world should be. Um, And it's just kind of a stream of characters talking about what their life is and the doctor going, well, actually, it should be something. So it came across to me a bit like, I mean, I know the doctor is trying to undo some of the damage or minimise the damage that they've done by accidentally arriving there. But it, for me, it seemed to stretch a little bit too much into the doctor insinuating himself into the society and how it works and basically essentially directing it by saying, yeah, but you've always told Jasper to take care of the mouse and now you're criticising him because he actually succeeded in the thing you wanted him to do. And and it's kind of, I think the doctor was a bit too, this is how you should be rather than, directing sort of more um subtly or dealing with obvious injustices in certain ways so it, it seemed to me to be a bit i think i think the characterization of the doctor was you know that would be my main note would be would be he he seems he's if 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 he kind of knows early on oh my god this is my fault basically what what he shouldn't have done is realize where he was and he should have gone we need to leave now because the doctor, I mean, I guess that's why he got shot at the beginning, so yeah. that because otherwise that would happen. But I, I still think he should have been going. Well, this is obviously a computer program or somebody's psychic projection. This can't possibly be. 
I think as well, he was shot at the beginning, so we saw the world through the eyes of his companions. Yeah, which yeah, is where a lot yeah. of the comedy was at the beginning of the book. Yeah, yeah. but 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 um, but but it, what what you were just saying, um, Jason, sort of made me think of the a quote I wrote down from near the end, which is when they get it was right at the end. But they, you know, Angie says, "So we didn't mess up this world after all." And the doctor says, "We rescued it from a repetitive, unfulfilled existence. We taught its people to think for themselves, to make their own choices. We changed things forever. We gave them ambition, but perhaps we took their innocence in return." What do you think? And I think it's it's weird one because it's, it, that's kind of the doctor in nearly every story. I, you know, we have this thing at Cutaway Comics when we, you know, because we take IP, um, you know, Paradise Towers and all the, and the, and, the, and the like, and we go and one thing Gareth who runs uh, Cutaway is always saying is that the Doctor lands basically foments a revolution and then leaves. Um, And so it's almost like what happened next is our sort of thing. But it's, you know, it makes me think of the Sunmakers where a man's getting thrown off a roof on Pluto and, uh, and all those sort of things. And it's, you know, the doctor comes and he, He's like he's got non-interference as his thing, you know. You mustn't change history. Not online. this time. It's inadvertent because they just arrived. Yeah. That was the very act that caused the revolution or the maturing yeah, yeah. of this society. And yeah. and he can't leave straight away because he's injured. And by the yeah. time he's woken up, people are starting to think for themselves. Yeah, then, yeah. James, why did you like the courtroom scene? For me, the courtroom scene really does work as a pivotal scene, and. It's partly because the Doctor is not very present for a lot of this book. Um, that It's a book with a lot of characters. You might argue too many. I certainly, uh, you know, without the without the kind of hooks of... It, it feels like it's exploring a lot of different worlds. He obviously wants to do Scooby-Doo. He wants to do Tom and Jerry. He wants to do all of these. He wants to give you all of these things. And he's populating the world in a, in a way that's joyous on on one hand but it does give you a lot of threads to keep up with in the meantime the doctor has been shot and is unconscious and the first third of the book is a bit like one of william hartnell's week off episodes where he's just having a lie down in the <laughs> hotel room um and i don't feel like the doctor is very present in a lot of the narrative in the courtroom scene he suddenly takes center stage in a way that i think is i think it's better written than than jason portrayed it just then i i think it's quite subtly um he nudges he nudges the characters in a certain direction. He asks questions. And I just got a sense, I could really hear, hear Paul McGann's voice in that. I could hear also the what, what you can see in that dialogue is the Doctor enjoying himself. It's like, okay, I'm faced with a room full of people who are incensed because one of them has stepped over a line. I'm going to have some fun with this. And for a chapter, the Doctor suddenly is just asking them all to question what they actually really think and he turns a mob into a into an intelligent debate um it seemed like the most doctorish moment for me and more more doctor who than a lot of what's around it which is necessarily kind of slapstick and cartoony yeah i i wondered if i wondered if the original germ germ of an idea of this book wasn't a doctor who book is what i kept thinking because it feels a we mentioned hitchhikers it may, almost felt like it could maybe be a standalone book that our heroes crash land on a planet got enough uh, going on and i mean I, also coming in to this not being familiar with the edas i don't know that it's a great introduction to fitz and angie either uh, that, that's one of my main notes as well i have no idea i don't get very much impression of who they are and i'd like to ask about fitz because we 
you've got the uh, the sex element. Is he a sleaze? Oh, completely. It, so, so, so he is a sort of I don't know a Captain Jack style. When I was when we were at Doctor Who books in the mid nineties, so when I was writing these reviews, I was actually doing a tally of how many people he slept with in in his run of stories, and it went right. up into the hundreds. I mean, it was absurd. Because he seems really unpleasant. I mean, the fact that he's first, not. He's not only. It's the only no, no, thing see, we really learn about that... him is that he's just all in his. It's like his his entire mantra throughout is how to get this cartoon babe into bed. Yeah, only to find which, when which... he finally does that. Yeah, yeah. It pays off. I I quite like it because it because it's that sleaziness hits collides head on with a world so innocent that even when they're introduced to sex, they don't really understand it. That that made me feel get what it's quite uncomfortable. In that he's he's just going. I thought it was going to be that he'd been taken over, like he was being influenced by by Uh, the world. And he basically went, "Oh, there's there's Penelope Pitstop." Kids cartoon, and it's a kids cartoon. In fact, it's a kids cartoon, and he wants to bang it. Uh, it, it made me he feel is effectively like the the EDA's Bernice, and let's not forget that she could be a bit sex mad at times during the New Adventures. And I think that gets a bit of a pass, mm. maybe because she's a strong woman in the nineties, who's who's that I way. I think I'd be all right if he was. It, it just felt a bit like I don't know, a bit reductive and a bit. Uh, but again, with tone, I I'm I struggle with I struggle with. Uh, Doctor Who doing bedroom stuff too. Bernice is really funny though. I think that she is she is a very well realized character in in the way she speaks. Mm. We don't get that from Fitz, and I was really bothered at the start by how both Fitz and Angie sort of take the world in their stride. I wanted to see them freaking out more. The thing I liked about Angie was the fact that she's always she's like a a, a banker from London and she's got a very mm. logical mind and she's been dumped in this world with zero logic. So in mm. those sort of early scenes, she's really trying to make sense of what's going on around her and there's no sense to be made of it. And mm. just at the point in the book where she starts to make sense of the rules of the crooked world, things have started to change. Mm. I, I liked all of that. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of good stuff with uh, with them trying to figure out what's going on in the in the world, and then how they've inadvertently influenced it, how they've influenced it without thinking about it and without realizing exact trying to influence it without realizing exactly how it was going to work. So it's kind mm. of a when you've got a little bit of an idea, mm. but you don't know the full thing, you have unintended consequences, and then the bits where they actually are, right now we figured it out, we can use this to our advantage, yeah. like the escape over the ravine and so on and so the forth custard um, pie gun yeah custard that's... pie gun that the doctor <laughs> has is, I mean, is just brilliant unless you, you want to answer to that... a face full of dairy products you better let them go sorry go on. <laughs> but one of the things that one of the things that seemed off for me and i don't know how it all works in the fictional universe of doctor who is that these characters are so recognizable to us as the readers but not to the characters who yeah. are in the yeah. story. And I don't yeah, know yeah. when Fitz comes from exactly and where his, but Angie is definitely a well, Fitz, uh, Fitz is 1940s, isn't he? Fitz is 1940s. Okay, so at the height yeah. of these cartoons, Angie is from you know the 90s. Mm. 
they would have seen cartoons like this and it doesn't they don't seem to realize it doesn't seem yeah. to click with them that there's they're a in huge a cartoon world a huge blunder editorially because two books back in the book of the steel angie's being particularly vile to somebody and says oh no yeah she's very specky just like velma from scooby-doo uh, and then she has a story with the scooby gang and she doesn't recognize any gang of them. doesn't recognize yeah. them. No. but having said all that the sequences that re- the ones the scene that really did work, the one that kind of makes you realize, oh, actually, this isn't just going to be the doctor and everyone having zany fun in a cartoon world. And which really got to me was when Streaky Bacon went was sitting contemplating the fact that he may have just killed somebody mm. and tries to kill himself. Yeah. Oh, good. That's a great scene. He just yeah, frazzles yeah. his head and he's like, well, I'm going to be fine in a minute and cries. And I thought, oh, that is that really got to me. It's even yeah. described as him putting his hand in his trotters. Yeah. <laughs> and, and on the other side, I really felt a sense of peril when when they realised that, the, you know, the TARDIS crew could be harmed. Suddenly, this place is like really dangerous. Yeah, um, why you say that? that really they don't, something in they don't yeah. necessarily re- react as though there's that much that's that was one of the things that bothered me about the way they were, were responding the doctor's shot and it is described as though he has actually been shot at close range with a blunderbuss for a yeah. lot of the first few chapters i was thinking well why on earth is he still alive we do get an explanation for that later on but it just seemed to me like the, the clearly there was peril had been introduced they could be harmed and i didn't mm. think that that led to any particular sense of jeopardy i think the, the, the I, I, bit I remember, where the, I remember the feeling so there was there were some scenes when I do remember feeling like, you know, these people these people don't realise how dangerous they are. Um uh sort of you know, they're zooming around blasting people and things. Um so the, the, so but yeah, may, may, maybe a little bit, but I think maybe that's just a little bit of like like characters in Doctor Who tend to be a lot cheekier than people would in real life. Like yeah, I don't care. Yeah, and it's and, it, and it is danger. It is in the nature of this narrative that a lot of the scenes um, mimic the the kind of sequences that you get in um, in those cartoons, and and it sounds it feels like I'm being very down on this, but which um, maybe um, I'm not being clear. I I think this is a really well written book, and I think it's a confident book. And one of the triumphs of this book is that. Um, Steve Lyons takes what is effectively an entirely visual medium and manages to describe it in prose in a way mm. that isn't leaden, it isn't clumsy, it's it's really visual. I think that's Brilliant. an astonishing yeah, thing. It's real energy to oh, the prose. Absolutely. It's a very it's visual experience. Yeah, but I did you... start to feel like some of these scenes when he does the the Roadrunner scene and then we get the Wacky Races scene and then we get the Scooby-Doo scene, it started to feel a little bit repetitive to me, a little bit relentless in the way that I think I would find Saturday morning cartoons were I to watch them now. Um, it's in it's in the nature of the thing. It's very well done. I, I, I enjoyed it more is... when, we'd, when you'd got through that. I think so. I wanted more of the psychological stuff. I wanted yeah, and- more of the the, the streaky um, self reflection, and, and that's why. Kind of by the time we got to the courtroom, I thought felt like we were a much kind of yeah. more enjoyable ground. Really, yeah, I, I, think- I preferred the second half, even though Definitely. I was living yeah. with the dread that it might turn out to be a planet of cartoon people <laughs> with no other science fiction explanation, which my which my nerdy brain requires. I hate but, to be I that person. I got to the end of the book and I went, "Oh, was that the explanations for all this?" It was a lot more fun before that. 
Oh well, yeah. yeah I mean, the explanation was kind of it almost felt like well, we need some explanation, but the big the bit that needed explanation wasn't that it was a child influencing everything going on. The bit that needed explanation was how the did this thing come to be in the first place yeah. even before yeah. the child. Yeah, yeah. You just and sort with, of have to accept that this is that a, a blank you know, slate world with blank slate people ready to have. Yeah. Well, I think it suggested that they were them. sort of wild animals. They were like the indigenous fauna, and then this. I mean, I mean, it's a bit like when we were discussing the Doomsday Weapon, or whenever you discuss these things. You're like, we are really discussing things that maybe weren't expected to be pulled apart, <laughs> at sort of English literature level. But, uh, but, but the fact is, we are sitting here, and and I, I think, why, why is somebody from the future uh, obsessed with seventies cartoons? Wouldn't their head be full of something else? It's but, all, um, it's very conceptual. The whole experience yeah. is about the concept, and I think yeah. that uh, you know, in those terms, you have to just give things a, a fantastic a read. Bit. You have to yeah. kind of just suspend disbelief yeah. and not worry you, you too do much. Yeah. About. I mean, one remind, of the, one remind of things, Sorry, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in as you know because I'm because I'm expected to say these things. Um, yes, I was in, waiting for you. Come on, in in these podcasts is um, the the notion that this is an impossible, this is an infinite universe, and anything can happen. One of the fundamental tenets of physics as a science is that, no, it's not that anything can happen. It's just certain things do happen. And that's mm. the way the universe works, whether it's here or somewhere yeah. else. So you kind of, you know, fit the physics of having the sun come up and go down yeah. and put his hands. You know, it's like, well, hang on. There's still got to be something here that creates this life. Yeah, yeah. They, how do they sustain, et cetera? And the idea that gravity works by mutual consent is, you know, Isaac Newton is <laughs> a good spinning joke, in though. his grave and Albert Einstein is also spinning in his grave and everything else. So, a, I mean, it is worth remembering universal that, velocity. that the joy of Doctor <laughs> Who, the premise of Doctor Who is it kind of can go anywhere and do anything. And that's why we're still here all these years later. Oh, yeah, yeah. It can, yeah. absolutely. But generally speaking, what it does is, you know, and, it, I, and I know I've had, I've had this conversation about, you know, the science in doctor who and in this instance it kind of doesn't really apply because my big bugbear with science in doctor who is when they take an actual scientific concept and make it a central part of the plot and then arse it up he's talking and about that, kill the moon folks kill the moon the end of creature from the pit daleks in manhattan that, yeah th those things they, they they really bug me so this one just basically openly at the beginning chucks all this out the window and goes eh, anything can happen what the hell here we are we're in a cartoon world let's just go with it and it does carry you along with it what i really love though for me the central scene of this book wasn't the courtroom scene where the doctor is talking to people it's the riot scene where steve lyons basically says look at all these cartoons that we love to see and think how fucking horrific they actually are yeah you know with people being shot i mean i mean god bloody hell i know spoiler alert but scrapper the little basically yeah. scrappy do character well we all scrappy cheered that get killed it. by a 10 ton weight but that that was a that was a i mean yeah, we all wanted that though, dead, right finally. did we all want that scrappy do did a little you know, shit. And you know, when they talk about you know people firing off their guns and blood and bone shooting out of people rather than just being charred. Well, the I bit that jumped that. out to me was when they set upon a white kitten and tear it to pieces. The bit that jumped out at me was when in the court case the doctor's pointing out that Jasper's in a cycle of abuse of like, well, he can't win. Yeah. And yet you're gonna punish him if he doesn't win. 
And I was like, yeah, you're actually, punishing, those, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're punished for failing to catch the mouse. And then he's punished when he actually catches the mouse and kills it. And but, you also, know, it's it a bit of a laugh, isn't it? <laughs> it makes you it makes you think of the number of times in, in cartoons where the characters actually don't do those things, like Tom and Jerry constantly. Tom swallows Jerry whole, I'm sure, in a couple of cartoons. But he never hmm. bites down on him. Bites his head off. No, no. <laughs> you know, as he does no, no. in this. In that this. Scene, so guys. It's kind of, then he never oh, gets oh, that was... flecked with his blood. Yeah. <laughs> the but unfortunately, the thing, I'm going to go. chuck this in as a, as a another spoiler. Anything. It's, it's one thing that left me really, really unsatisfied at the end. Jasper's art, Jasper's story is about his finally killing Squeak. And then right at the end, with even less explanation than anything else that has ever happened in the book, Squeak is back. That bothered me, yeah. And so yeah. the whole point yeah. is you've actually killed this character. He's gone, he's dead, and now you have to deal with the fact that you have now got the ability to take people out of your world forever. And then at the end, it's like, no, Squeak's back. Hit him in the face with a plank. Go and chase him again. All is well. It's like, hang on, yeah, it's like having your cake that, and eating it, doesn't it? But it also, Did Scrapper come back as well? Does, no. does everyone come back? Yeah, that's what, that's what I mean. So it kind of yeah, it's a bit strange because the whole point is it's because we like Squeak, but we don't like Scrapper. That's why. Yeah, yeah. But 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 the the quote I've got is the crowd panicked and three dogs from the Anti Cat League took the opportunity to spring upon a small white kitten and tear it apart. Oh. Um, so that white kitten doesn't get to come back. It's a kitten. Weirdly see. enough, in that whole sequence where the head is bitten off, yeah. um, the bit that got me is when the maid comes home and it's, she's just described as she just couldn't stop screaming. Mm. Oh, yeah, it's horrible. It's, God, it's suddenly it's, it goes into horror, proper horror territory. But that's, that's brilliant. Yeah. That's a lovely Any, Anyone a who's lovely actually term. owned a cat has probably found the head of a mouse at some point. <laughs> Okay. Well, she described she's described always as the fat lady in the ki- is it the oh, fat the, woman the, in the big kitchen? the big fat hotel yeah. maid <laughs> yes yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i love that you never see her head <laughs> and the doctor goes oh, i'm so sorry to have to announce her like this in the, in the courtroom but <laughs> yeah. big fat hotel maid please come up <laughs> yeah yeah but but the the the, the sort of deeper stuff is really interesting as well like it's the existentialism and the uh the sort of you know notions of free will and everything mm. Um, you know, as as and it was it was very much almost like maybe this dead person, although because we don't establish the dead girl till right at the end, it it's not really there. But but just in general, it's a sort of about it's about growing up. Yeah, and uh, and I started I started looking into you know a bit of Freud and stuff. So infantile narcissism when you're early on, and and religion is a psychic remnant of of. You know when you when you are all ego because you are the entire world, and we gradually learn that we're part of a we're just a tiny speck in a massive universe and we're not important. Um, but the um, the religion being a psychic remnant of it kind of fits in with the with the Scooby Gang going. Well, there must be a god. We must be here for a reason. Um, kind of thing. Um, it is very much about growing up and the idea mm. that it, as as we all do as as kids we we run around and at some point in your childhood you have to learn the lesson that your actions have consequences and that's what this entire mm. world is coming to terms with now because they've been running mm. around 
shooting each other, beating each other up with planks, mm. catching each other, etc., and constantly just going through the same cycle of everything. And there are no consequences to anything they do. And now there are, and they have mm. to find a way to deal with that. And that's what we all have to do as we as we grow up, we learn that actually what we do does have consequences and we have to deal with those consequences. We have to own those consequences. We have to be aware that what we do has consequences and then hopefully maybe in some cases not do the things that lead to those consequences because they're not good. And so mm. this, this whole world is now coming, is growing up basically because it was a child and now it's the adults who are influencing it. So, yeah. So I mm. don't think that the sex is inconsistent with that. And I, I totally take Ian's discomfort with a character basically falling in love with a you know a children's cartoon character. Though I think there I think people do in an odd way fall in love with cartoon characters. I, I, think I maybe, maybe a... I'm maybe I'm maybe I'm just feeling very guilty because I did have a crush on Penelope. <laughs> <laughs> for me, um, it was Aladdin and let's... and the Teen Angels from Captain Caveman. But but I think that this. The, the thing that's really <laughs> fun for me about that is that actually Fitz, although he's seen as this kind of grown up and, and you know, constantly horny, actually his crush is pretty immature. Mm. Um, and it's that's based entirely on me about him as a character. Uh, yeah, no, I didn't warm to him as a character, but I, but I, but one of the things that I thought worked really well was that by the end we had his, his, um, his desire had been, exposed as this childish thing as this you know basically yeah. really infantile crush and angel the character the object of his affections had been shown to be the more mature and actually develops a more mature approach to to love than yeah. he does um i i i i think that there's for me you know once upon a time i was you know just aghast that the doctor would uh kiss a lady but um i i sort of i've come to the point where i think that doctor who can handle sex and i think it's quite well handled here and you know if uh, there are uh, some quite filthy innuendos in it which I, I sort of didn't mind because they always play off this world of innocence i'd love um this bit the stork delivers them a baby and they're they're absolutely appalled because they they don't believe that anyone's ordered a baby uh too late said the green ghost you've ordered it you can't send it back now you should have used a french letter said the weasel everybody looked at him it's something i heard once he said with a shrug if you write to the stork in french it won't understand you so it won't bring you anything oh that's good yeah 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 the the the, the quote i got uh, i wrote down was from chapter 16 which is just uh, you know it's just a bit a bit cringe, as the kids say. But um, Angel leaned over him, using a dropper to apply a menthol-scented solution to the claw marks on his cheek. He winced with each touch of the stinging liquid, but her gentle hands and the close proximity of her breasts <laughs> to his face almost made the pain worthwhile. The it bit that just makes hot... me... And it's it, this would be fine if... But is Fitz an absolute dick? Is why is he traveling with the doctor? He's, he's basically he horrible. He no no he the the well, premise like of the a, character was he was well, uh, a bit of a douchebag in the sixties. He worked in a garden center who had pretensions of being James Bond, and he steps out into the universe and he wants to be a hero, but he knows mm. he's not. That's basically that's basically his character. But what happens? And this isn't probably the like best showing in... for him, but at his it seems best, like a grim incel is. <laughs> I mean, I love Fizz. I think he's great. But at his best, he does get to be the hero almost inadvertently and almost against his better nature. And with sort of the best writers, that works brilliantly. 
I'm just not sure. Yeah, if this is your introduction to Fitz and he's trying to fuck Penelope Pins or whatever her name is, <laughs> that's not a great introduction to the character. What disturbed me about the sex was once that that idea had been introduced to the Crooked World, we then have Angie discovering Mike and Harmony from the Scooby Gang in the cupboard, rubbing mm. their non-bits up against each other. I was oh, going, good. oh, where are we going the, now? The whole, the whole, bit, the whole bit where she's going, don't look, don't look, and she checks out, she checks out whether Porky Pig's got any junk. And uh, it's just, it's just. Like, I love that they're in there in that cupboard, but they've no idea why they they've yeah. gone there again. Yeah, it's a book that, about growing that up, is, but I think that is childhood. We've all done that. We? Can I ask you all a question then? And I'm going to start with James. Is this a funny book? Yeah. Oh yeah. It's a fun. I think it's a really witty book. Um, I as I say, I I found some of it a bit relentless. I think Steve Lyons is clearly. A, an absolute devotee of the source material and i think maybe uh, that's maybe that required a little bit more discipline i don't know he's having such a good time i i find it kind of hard to hold it against him when when it's all so well written um and and he does maintain this um constant stream of visual inventiveness Weirdly enough, you know, the funniest line in this, I wrote it down, was, meanwhile, a spokesperson for the Crooked World Electric Company announced that due to a large increase in the number of ideas, their supply of light bulbs have been exhausted. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it was four o'clock in the morning. I was reading that and I burst out laughing. Yeah. No, no, no. I mean, it's 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 got its flaws. And I guess one of the things about these is you tend to discuss flaws because they're, they're easier to. Yeah. I think you learn a lot about writing when you discuss what would you do? Or just, I just think if you just, just the the idea that it's coming psychically from a from a young girl needs to not just be slapped at the end because a lot of people maybe who are like me maybe stop reading it because who knows yeah. but it but but it is a funny book. It, it is. I mean, my, my brilliant, brilliant, brilliantly energetic. Yeah, my favourite line was right at the end, near with Boss Dog, who's just been unmasked as the the fake god. Mm. And I would have gotten away with it too if it hadn't been for you, you complete and total bastards. (laughs) His swearing had become incrementally worse. I just love the bit where he stood up and went, "Oh, sod off!" (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's, but I think. uh... Yeah, I think what this book what this book does is what a lot of the best. Um, Doctor Who does and I've said in I'm sure I've said it in other podcasts and it's a point against some stories Doctor Who works so well because of its sense of humour the best stories maintain humour alongside the really dark stuff and this stuff this book balances that brilliantly I mean Mm. this is a cartoon world with people saying funny things having these you know the light bulbs gag and everything else but mm. it's also a cartoon world where one of them is so despairing at what he's done that he tries to kill himself. Mm. And, you know, one of the hero characters loses his nephew in horrible, horrible circumstances. That doesn't stop the book being funny, but it does make those moments hit much harder, I think. Mm. And I yeah. think that's where, you know, that's why, you know, we we talk about, you know, for example, a story like Warriors of the Deep which I think has a lot to recommend it, but it has is there a completely joke in that story? misplaced its sense of humour. There is one line where the Doctor says, what have you been eating when he gets into the guy's Hilarious. isolation suit? And apparently mm. Peter Davis yeah, I find that a little bit unpleasant, to keep that actually. in. 
because the rest of the story is so flaming po faced that it really hurts it. I think. And so well, this one, yeah. this book is Sorry. is really funny, but also yeah, I mean, really dark and really dealing with some really quite deep important material. So yeah, I think talking of a, a lack of humor, you know, I've just I've just rewatched Castrovalva for another podcast and. Uh, and that's got big similar ideas to this crooked world, but it's bid me being quite unfunny and taking himself quite seriously. And uh, and I still like it, but it's it's uh, there's, there's a yeah I don't. It would I'd benefit from a few world over Honestly, Ian, I know very little about telebiogenesis, so we better move on from that one. Um, can I ask you all then to pick out a character that goes on a journey in this book? that you really liked and obviously i'm going to choose somebody first so if everyone's thinking the same person well i'm so sorry about that i'm going to throw <laughs> that out to james oh i uh, it's a it's a difficult one to answer because as i as i've said i think there are maybe too many characters in this and i could maybe have done with just a, giving a smaller number of characters a bit more attention I found it was quite a way through the book before I started to invest in any of them. So as I've said, by the end, I really thought that Angel had been an interesting journey, but but it took me a long time to, to get on board with that. Jasper, I suppose, the, the cat um, is, is the one that, because he doesn't talk, we always see him through his own thoughts. We experience his kind of slapstick cycle of agony through his eyes so i guess jasper the cat is probably the one who um most immediately kind of seemed to me to be going on 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 an interesting journey and the point you know when when he hands himself in you know he realized he's done something absolutely dreadful that's that's really well described and the fact that the get his guilt is 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 really palpable and the fact that he kind of feels like he deserves the worst and then the court scene where he suddenly hears what the doctor's saying and starts to question that and he starts to go oh yeah no i am in a cycle of abuse um <laughs> yeah so i i think i think probably he's the one that stands out to me that that is yeah that's really good his journey is is excellent and as much as i criticize the final bit where squeak is back because you have gone through that journey with him, you really do feel his joy at the end that he has this, you know, he yeah. has this thing back in his life and he can use, Well, on. I'm, I, so, but I don't, I still think it's, I still, I still think it's a bit kind of, well, that's a bit odd. You know how at the end of Mary Poppins, Mr. Banks having lost his job and realized there's something <laughs> better in life than being a banker is given his job back. And it's meant to be this great moment of, oh, you can be a partner. And and I think it's a massive cop-out because Mr. Banks has been on a journey and he doesn't need the bank anymore. He's learned that his family is more important. It's a little bit like that. And I just sort of mm. see Jasper going back to his old life and and mm. r- with relish going back into the cycle of abuse. <laughs> well, yeah. If I ever if I do speak to Steve Lyons, the first question I'm going to ask is, why on mm. earth did you bring Squeak back to life? We want answers. How about you, Ian? We seem to have lost Ian in the time scoop again. No, he's back. Are you here with us? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, no, you started going strange from my point of view. But, uh... <laughs> well, that's oh. <laughs> <laughs> which, which sort of character journey did you like best? Um, well, I'm no one's a streaky bacon yet. So uh, he uh, he he's sort of set up. He's He's on the first page. And he is set up. He's got quite a clear journey from uh, 
uh, he could almost be the hero. You could almost, if this wasn't a Doctor Who story and it was some crashed people, it could all be from the point of view of Streaky Bacon, which, uh, and and then he meets some aliens who come to the planet or some earthlings and realizes what he is. Cause he, he goes, he goes on a really well delineated um, arc because he, you know, from, sh- you know, from shooting a doctor, feeling guilty to contemplating suicide um, out of his guilt all the way through to becoming a deputy. And then at the end, he's the sheriff. So he has the hero's journey of everyone in the book, a lot more than the companions and the doctor. Yeah, really. I did. Yeah. I stepped back at the end and I thought, hey, do you know what? He was a lot more likable than Fitz and Angie in this. Strictly back. Yeah, yeah. very much so. Yeah, yeah. I, did, I didn't really... It, was, it kept reminding me of, you know, Joe Grant in The Doomsday Weapon. Is that a bit like if you if your only impression of Joe Grant was the Doomsday Weapon, who is she? Like, and I felt a bit like that. For me, it might seem because c- characters are a funny thing, aren't they? If you're reading every EDA as it comes out, it's Angie and Fitz. But to me, who'd never read an Angie and Fitz yeah. thing, I went on Tardis Wiki today just to sort of go, who are these people? I and then, and what was there was like, well, I didn't get much of that. I just all I got was that Fitz was a bit of a dick. When this I is a, I was, and I had the brain, the brain of a thirteen-year-old boy. What I did quite like, <laughs> there was a sequence where Angie and the Doctor were talking about what they'd done to the world, and they they talk about uh, religion for a bit as well, don't they? And what on earth? How do we sculpt these people? Is it our responsibility? I like, I did like all of that, but it was one scene in the and whole book, and that's really late on in the book as well. Mm. At the start, Angie is separated from the Doctor and Fitz, and the Doctor's unconscious, so we don't see those characters interact with the Doctor at all for the for no. a lot of the book, and and that I think that really co- colours our ability to understand who they are because they're not interacting with each other; they're straight away our there are in into this this world. It's yeah, a, the other, it's a the other problem issue, I think with that is that they don't. There, there are into this world, but they are also the only human characters in this world. Mm. They haven't got anyone they can talk to with a common point of reference. So you don't kind of get them having a conversation with somebody about anything that we could really recognise apart from the bizarreness of this cartoon world. So I'm, I'm, I, you may have spotted me going ah when Ian said streaky bacon because that's who I was going to say. Oh god! Um, so the only other character really who went on a decent journey, I think, was as as James said, Angel Falls, um, mm. who began to question the reality of her world when Angie started going. Well, why on earth are you waiting for somebody to do what's going on? And people pointing out, um, you know that that that's the same guy. And that's recognisably Penelope Pitstop and the hooded claw. Um. Yeah, you know, so and and then she, I, I mean, I did get the um, I did like the sequence where she's in the room with Fitz and the Doctor, and they're talking about what's going on, and Fitz and the Doctor are having a conversation, almost forget that she's there until she bursts into tears on realizing that actually all of this is changing and all of this crap is happening because of you. Why on earth did you come here? I had and the I think that punch a... the air moment with her, you know, at the end of the chapter where she says, I want to take control of my life because we've had half the book and throughout that half of the book, she's gone on that cycle of, oh, it's Mr. Weasley. Oh, it's the mask weasel, you know, and not knowing who's who. And then finally she started sort of starting to take control. Yeah. She's the one that surprised me this time. I, I was quite invested in her, but like you said, James, it took me a while. Yeah. There is a I... wonderful moment, isn't there, where she, 
it's so obvious that that Mr. Weasley and the the Master Weasley <laughs> are the same person, and it's like it's almost as if she she knew all along, but she's just been pretending to herself, and that's a, a lovely moment when she decides, come on, this is ridiculous. She needs to confront reality. Yeah, I think Angie goes through at one point, doesn't she? No, Angel, remember, yeah. you know. Yeah. Although Angie does a lot of that, I did like the bit where she pulled the sheet off the ghost, and they're all like, "Well, what have you done?" Yes. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One, one thing I was going to say um, about this is it makes you—it was just brilliant in that it makes you realize quite how many tropes there are in animated stuff. Like you're there going, surely there's, oh yeah, there's that with thing with the plates. There's people running around with plates. There's the running across ravines. There's the ghost. You know, there's so many. It's just like an endless. It is. I mean, a, a, a bit like James sort of maybe alluded to. Maybe there's too much. Maybe he had too much to choose from, and he fitted it all in. It's um, it's it's pulling from Looney Tunes and Hanna Barbera, which are in my head are quite two yeah. quite different visual languages. So so I know it's almost like is he going to have Disney as well and just go for the full thing so yeah so maybe maybe that's an element he went for i think he, he that yeah you're saying about up. it being almost too much is like we start the book with just sequence after sequence of cartoon mm. reality cartoon things going on we then end the book in much the same way only this time the characters have got the hang of the physics of the world yeah but mm. i think at the end of the book it chucks in so much i was reading through it and it's like we're going into the volcano and we're going in and scary manner and all this stuff is happening mm -hmm. and oh my god and we've only got about 15 pages left are we actually going to get to an ending it any actually use its page count does it's it because it's 200 really wraps up very very swiftly yeah. mm -hmm. and then it's exactly what we said about the doomsday weapon wasn't it but it yeah. but mm -hmm. you know and it but it is kind of a conceit that you do get from cartoons where randomly people end up in the same place at the same yeah, time yeah. because that, mm -hmm. that's just what the plot needs and it's a cart it's a five minute cartoon and so it's got to happen and mm -hmm. in this case it kind of did the same thing but at the end i felt there was almost too much going on with all the super volcano mm -hmm. stuff and angie and the scary manor doing the scooby gang there's so much of it going on the couple of bits that i really did like um about it was the um was a, a moment where fitz was being held prisoner and somebody banged on the door and he noticed that the sound seemed to radiate from the door in little white lines of energy, which yes. is the kind of thing you see a lot of in cartoons. And the other bit was when they make a throwaway comment about, good God, Fitz, you've taught them how to build a super volcano and a laser and a hologram and all <laughs> yeah. that. What's next? Teach them how to build an A-bomb. And then you find that they've built an A-bomb and it's just a bomb yeah. that explodes with loads of letter A's. <laughs> he told them what yeah. an A-bomb actually is. There was <laughs> that was so many chilling, great... That was quite chilling, though, wasn't it? I was like, ooh, I felt a little, ooh. There's so many no, great like visual that. gags like that. I like the bit where someone shades their eyes from the sun and the sun goes, oh, fine, and it just buggers off. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Or he's told them the countdown starts stops at a one, and so when it gets to the end of the countdown, it just keeps go recycling the one because they don't understand <laughs> yeah. what the countdown's actually for. Yeah. Wonderful. We, we, haven't, we, we mustn't forget, the. Um, so I think you uh, pointed this out on, uh, on Twitter, now called X, is... I believe this is called this. They call this a Twitter. He said, "A tiny avian creature drawn to pain and suffering." Oh, what so is it? Isn't it? So the little circle of birds, which I, I had a look. I had a look online to see if is that why they were called Twitters. <laughs> I don't think they are, but but I found out it's it's in the, you know the the, um, the book of tropes, which is sort mm -hmm. of online, and one of them is the circle of birds. It's called. 
Um, well, that's the that's the the beginning of Roger Rabbit. It is it? the beginning of Roger. Roger Rabbit, is, yeah. Roger is almost fired because he can't produce stars. He's like birds and <laughs> other things. Oh, really? Like, stars. Yeah. I, I, you need stars when I hit you on the head, and it's like I can do stars. I've not, seen, I've not seen Roger Rabbit for like I've only seen it once. It's aged oh, very, very well. It's yeah, fantastic. It? Really well. I remember not liking the... it very much when it came out, but yeah, I've not it's seen superb. It. It's still one of for me. It's one of the best movies that was ever made. It's Talk technically about... absolutely really? brilliant. The characters oh, well, that people lust after uh, Jessica oh, yeah. Rabbit. Yeah. It's, well, it's I, I and it's dark because it get, you know we get the cartoons are real, and of course, okay, a corollary of that is if cartoons are real characters in a real world, we can kill them. Mm. And the sequence where Judge Doom dissolves an innocent little oh, shoe. That little yeah. shoe is horrific, horrific. especially you know if what? you consider shoes come in pairs. Yeah, I just remember. I just remember you know. not liking it as a kid. But um, I I haven't considered that place actually. Thank you for the nightmares. So there you go. There's one little shoe running around Toontown. I remember. Yeah. (laughs) The bit where where Christopher Lloyd is flat. Jerry having his head bitten off by Tom. So. The bit where um, Christopher Lord is flattened at the end of Who Killed Roger Rabbit and then peels his way off the floor. And then he's got that manic cartoon face with that horrible laugh. That chilled me to the bone as a kid. It was that's brilliant. I love that film. So yeah, and revisit it as an adult. I I must do. I'll 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 watch it with my kids. See see what a modern day eight year old thinks of it. And you, I mean, you would think Jessica Rabbit merges with Cameron Diaz, the sort of real life version in Mask. You would think, given he's there with his tongue unfurled, as described in the Crooked World, and his eyes going like the wolf, the wolf from the nineteen thirties sort of. <laughs> what, what gets me about Roger Rabbit, and I know we're not going to hear to talk about Roger Rabbit, no, and I will stop eventually, is that considering that it was made in the 1980s and they did it with the old fashioned paint on the anime, on the film cells, they didn't, you know, there's no computer generated stuff. The actors had nothing there to work off. Um, they had to move in specific ways. They had all sorts of weird and wonderful technical things going on to make the sets move and interact with the cartoons. You would think that coming to it 30 years later, you'd look at it and go, oh, yeah, it, it looks a bit duff now. It looks superb. It still looks, in some respects, better than a lot of newer things, I think. It holds up brilliantly. So I, I believe it did almost drive it. Bob Hoskins completely mad. But oh, he, was he is one of its secret after. weapons, though, because if you watch footage of Roger Rabbit um, without the special effects on, you realise what an absolutely brilliant mind what he's doing. Hoskins yeah. And how yeah. much of the, the heavy lifting he's actually doing for those effects to look convincing. We almost got him as Iron Gron in the Time Warrior, you know. He just wasn't available at the time. <laughs> it would have been quite interesting. Well, look, fellas, we, discuss... we, we ought to talk about the cover because I said earlier yeah. that I think the cover is a spoiler. Obviously, it's a it's a spoiler of something that we find out fairly early on in the book, but I would love to have read that first chapter not picturing a cartoon world. Um, and, and I'm not sure, I don't think the cover's terribly successful anyway, no. but I'm not sure it's helpful that we are picturing the Doctor as a cartoon character. I'm not sure we're meant to be picturing the, the Doctor as a cartoon character from the beginning. And and I just wonder if we'd been given the opportunity as readers to come to this, to, to work out for ourselves what was going on, whether it would have been a more satisfying entry into the world. Yeah. And, and maybe we'd have spent less time kind of questioning whether this was going to be explained at all. I, I kind of pictured them throughout. 
I mean, I agree the, the cover's fairly dreadful. Apologies to uh, whoever the artist was, but it's uh, it looks like a it was me couple of hours on a it wasn't me on some dodgy, yeah. But yeah, um, I, I agree, the yeah. cover is is because the thing about this is, yes, it's it's described about as that. a cartoon. <laughs> It's described as a cartoon world, um, but as you read it, you realise it's not a cartoon world. It's mm, a world where everyone yeah. behaves like cartoons yeah. and experiences things as cartoons, but they're not cartoons. They haven't materialised yeah, in a two-dimensional world. I saw them a bit world. like Roger Rabbit in three three D yeah. hand draw. Yeah, yeah. I saw so the, I the our, our heroes, the Doctor and companions. And then people, the cartoon yeah. world around them, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. The, yeah, I think I agree. I think the cover doesn't actually really tell the right story or set you up on the right. Mm. It kind of wrong foots you, um, and I yeah. think they'd have been better off with a cover that showed everybody as kind of three dimensional properly, but with cartoon things like the sticks of dynamite and the silly blunderbuss and things like that. But yeah, yeah. it's certainly not the first black sheep cover that completely ignores the text as well. So that happened quite a bit. But also as well, I think the problem with this is back to could and should again. This was the only time they could do a cartoon cover on the front cover of an Ape Doctor book. So they did. And mm. I kind of get it, but I don't like it either. I think it's a really ugly drawing. So it, it, if you're going to do it, do it better than this, I think. Yeah. But, yes. but, but I, I'm not sure it's... Well, I I, I think it's downright unhelpful as, as a way into the... I don't think it sells yeah. it anyway. Do you think people looked at this and thought, that looks like a book I want to buy? <laughs> no. 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 <laughs> Only me, James. Only me. No. <laughs> what, it, I, what I find... Yeah, particularly... Steve is like, you know... Oh, he's, oh, no, he, no, he, we keep losing your oh, yeah, Wi-Fi, so, Ian. Say, Paul, Mar Paul Mars gets the amazing pink poodle, like Asimov, Asimov, but camp amazingness. And Steve, poor Steve, gets this thing. But uh, I'm sure he had other covers that were good. He had but, uh... So I'm I'm curious. I was going to um, read Conundrum, but I didn't have time. But that's a, but to have two cartoon covers. Um, yeah, that like one's terrible as well. I mean, at Is least it? this time they do Ace uh, as sort of photorealistic or as well as they can, but with a very obvious sort of cartoon background. So it's it's more sort of relevant to the text, but it's still an ugly cover. Yeah, Doctor Who book covers it is very hit or miss with the emphasis on the miss. Yeah, I think. Um, I think what what I, I was gonna what I was gonna ask the three of you is because um, I know I've taken a lot of notes. I'm sure you guys have as well. Please do not scrimp on this when I ask you this. Is there anything we haven't covered that you'd like to cover? And my big question to you is: going into this, what did you expect? Coming out of it, what did you take away? And I'm going to start with Jason. Uh, going into this, I was expecting the cartoony, zany stuff uh, to be happening. Um, I kind of was wondering whether it was going to prove to be an offshoot of the land of fiction or something like that. Um, He's done that already. Yeah. What I took away from it was that this was actually obviously far more than that. And it was using the cartoon framework to tell a story about, as we've said, growing up and taking responsibility for your actions and how you how you interact with with other people around you in the world and things like that and maturing and so on and so forth. I did find the explanation a bit lacking. It was just kind of we can do it, so we will. Um, yeah, I, I, what was the question again? 
going in, coming out, and <laughs> anything else not coming out. Jesus Christ. Um, and what anything else you wanted to cover? I mean, the only thing I was going to say was that about the um, you know we've we've discussed the, uh, the the inclusion of sex, and there's also the inclusion of Angie popping to the toilet because she didn't know if there were bathrooms in things like that and checking out streaky bacon who wasn't wearing any trousers to see etc etc <laughs> what was that all about i mean my my thing my thing on that is that it's it's nice it's well enough done and it is humorous yeah in its intent but i've always found the inclusion of sex and romance in doctor who to be a little bit off-putting on the basis that and i've said this before and i'll say it again i'm sure on a show that can do anything, literally, and as this book proves, anything, because you go to a cartoon world, to keep bringing it back to romance and sex is the most mundane thing you can do in Doctor Who. We've got whole genres of books and TV and movies that deal with that. It doesn't need to be in Doctor Who. And it's one of the reasons I actually enjoyed Doctor Who in the first place as a kid, because it was one of the few things that didn't constantly throw romance and sex at you. It was just a story about something totally different and i think that also although in some respects the nature of this book is investigating and looking at what we look at as entertainment and what is deliberately left out of it because it would be horrific if you actually included it i think that sometimes a story like this you have to leave out bits like that because if you do think about it yeah it's not going to we've never seen anybody in doctor who go to the toilet except for one sequence in i think in um the impossible astronaut where amy meets somebody in a toilet that's like the only time in doctor who history that we've gone to a toilet because we don't care Apart from all the daleks in the magician's oh let's not talk <laughs> oh, about don't that. even don't even the like, sewers revolting <laughs> but we don't need to think about that so to put it in i think I, I sort of read it and went, oh, yeah, okay, but we didn't need that. Let's move on. So that's all. That's all I wanted to say about that. Is just I don't need it to be in Doctor Who at all. Can I counter that though and say that if this is a coming of age story, that is one of the most important chapters in coming of age. So maybe this is the one point where it is relevant in the story. Just that, Ian. Yeah. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, I'd kind of agree with you, Joe. Maybe the execution um, is slightly off, but, but yeah, but but it like going into adolescence, everyone bumping uglies in the cupboard and stuff, and or or no non uglies because they haven't got any. Um, I mean, it, it reminded me a lot of the thing I'd maybe want to talk about is a it reminded me of the Lego Movie a hell of a lot um, with, with the whole uh, existential. Why oh, are we here? Yeah, very much. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, the repetitive where we're all just in our jobs because they're toys and uh the sort of few futile existence they all live at the beginning. So you know, the futile existence they all live, um, sort of in that, and they sort of have a very futile existence in this. Um but um but but it, it also reminded me even you never know Doctor Who fiction, like how much it sort of influenced the showrunners of the new show. Like it reminded me of Amy with the Romans and the Stonehenge episode and all that, her childhood coming out. Um and um and a little bit of the silence in the library being a little girl. Yeah, I got that as well. Um, 
So you just never quite know. But we accused Steve Lyons of uh, of uh, a little bit of naughty nicking from Pleasantville, and uh, maybe it's maybe uh, it's been the torch has been passed on to uh, Stephen Moffat. What about <laughs> expectations going in and what you took when you finished the last page? Who, me? Y- um, you, yes, I, you. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I kind of guess I thought it was going to be quite like this because I just, just from the back, I thought it was going to be, here's all the rules of cartoons and then that's what I got. And then they started realizing they weren't, you know, that they, they, they got free will. So I kind of guess this is kind of it played out quite like I thought, and I, and like I said, I was just there for the whole thing, praying that it wasn't going to turn out to be a, you know, that it was going to have a proper Doctor Who explanation as I would see it. And my main criticism of it is it probably could have had that up front. Or or early on, so we didn't need to worry about and and it didn't actually have a it weirdly didn't have a big threat, did it? It kind of had oh we've we've made a bit of a mess here, uh, um, and then the doctor just came and went. It's up to you how your lives. Oh wait, what you're going to hang him? No, 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 don't do it like that. <laughs> I'm going to come in and moralise and tell you how you are going to set up, exercise your free will. Um, so, so it, it didn't massively hang together as a story, in a weird way, like some of the arcs did. But, but it maybe if it had a big threat, because it kind of weirdly didn't, because everything was a cartoon, kind of. I suppose it did have a threat at the end. But do you know what I mean? If there'd been an outside force that was doing something, I always thought that the biggest a, threat you know, was from within with this, you know? It's, it's yeah. how, how far we can possibly go. How about you then, yeah. James? Uh, one thing we haven't mentioned that I think is worth flagging up is that this book was written in 2002 and it still feels really fresh. It hasn't, there's nothing in it that, that really dates it, uh, except, except for one thing, which I shall now ungenerously flag up. Uh, towards the beginning, um, Angie explores the TARDIS library and it mentions that the library is full of ebooks. And I was trying to picture what that would actually is that just shelves full of Kindles? Um, <laughs> he's got a different Kindle for every book. I don't know how the doctor <laughs> deals with his ebooks. Um, but no, I think it's I think it's a really fresh piece of writing. And I and I I I think um I'm glad it exists in the Doctor Who universe. I I do think that, you know, one of the reasons I love Doctor Who is it can be anything. And if I've had a kind of complaint about Doctor Who at any point in its um in its development, it's it's that it's often not been as inventive and as imaginative as it was in its first kind of three years. Mm-hmm. And and I I love that the books range can do something like this. I think going in, I I I expected pretty much what I got what it didn't deliver that I was expecting by about halfway through was an explanation. And maybe I wasn't, I wasn't expecting it to sustain this, this world for the length of the entire book. I thought that at some point it would become the land of fiction or, or whatever. And in, and I'm glad it didn't. I'm glad that we actually got a book that was entirely contained in this world that took us in fact to, I, I, I like that there's not an outside threat. I like that, 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 that actually it's an existential threat. It's a, and they're questioning themselves and, and, and the 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 whole the whole problem, you know, it's the problem is not even that the villains discover, you know, that they can be even more villainous. The problem is, what are we going to do now that we now that 
we've grown up and we've learned this stuff. I like that. The ending doesn't quite deliver on the kind of the the there's a there's a sense planted as we approach the end that something really dreadful has happened. And I love that. And I love the sense of growing doom and the fact that Boss Dog uh, has this secret that he he just can't bear to to share. He's trying to protect them from this knowledge. I don't think the knowledge, when it arrives, lives up to that expectation. And I wish the finale had been more about that and more about that self-realisation than uh, another cartoon run around in a kind of, uh, you know, James Bond knockoff cavern. But overall, I th- I just think it's a, a, a really, it's a tour de force uh, and a really confident piece of writing. Um, and as I say, I'm really glad it exists. And I'm glad I read it. I think I think the explanation at the end of it, I, I didn't quite buy into it either because it's kind of, Boss Dog finds the girl, the girl starts influencing the world. It says, you know, he realised there was only one way to stop it happening, which heavily implies that he killed the girl. But then the doctor says, if it's any consolation, he probably didn't kill the girl because he wouldn't have known how. And I read that and I thought, well, first of all, that seems to contradict what the whole thing has been building up to. And secondly, not knowing how to kill somebody is not a guarantee that you can't kill somebody (laughs) because... Well, if we've you don't seen... know how to keep them alive you will kill them so you know it's kind of yeah but that's the that's the first thing that streaky baker discovers is i didn't think you know he didn't yeah he almost killed the doctor i could accept this world on face value and and was disappointed the, the, that we got an explanation at the end i was quite happy just to be immersed in it because it was such a fun imaginative quirky and ultimately mature place to be intriguingly though i'm going to say that had we not had an explanation i almost would have preferred that i think i agree because i think we either needed no explanation whatsoever and it's just right this is an impossible world where everything is influenced by other people and so things will develop that way or we needed a proper explanation that took up more than the last like three pages of the book. Yeah. Because yeah. what we got wasn't, I don't think, sufficient. It was neither fish nor fowl. Because no. so I kept thinking we needed a little bit more seeding. Because I was always a, as a person who's being reductive, but I was always a bit okay. I was always I was always reassured when we were sort of hinted at that Boss Dog knew something and I went okay there is going to be an explanation there better be a bloody explanation but then when there was it was a bit perfunctory mm. so that's the main flaw of it is it should have it sh- you know just it could have it just had that little bit zhuzhed up then I would have admired have the huts part of just not giving us one yeah the then, whole then last thing. just have a series of 20 questions on the last page yes <laughs> make it, it, make it, it up for yourself it would have just made me go. This is the Hitchhiker's book, not a Doctor Who book. And there is a, there is a, for me, there is a slight difference. The, the only thing um, I'd like to add is I wouldn't put it past Steve Lyons to be making a comment about Doctor Who itself, and mm-hmm. the Crooked World being classic Doctor Who, and the Doctor Fitz and Angie being effectively the new adventures i guess and those two mm-hmm. worlds colliding and just how shocking and terrible that could be sometimes have you read false the shadow parasite it's basically 600 pages of utter torture <laughs> literal torture and you know steve mm-hmm. lyons wrote head games in the new adventures which deliberately brought back mel 
wide-eyed Mel from season 24 to face mm-hmm. the new adventures Sylvester McCoy Doctor, Ros and Chris, who are, you know, effectively mm-hmm. policemen with guns going around brutalising people, and storms out the TARDIS in the end and goes, I don't know what this is anymore, but it ain't Doctor Who, goodbye, and just walks off. I wouldn't be surprised if something like that is happening in the crooked world. He's making some sort of comment because then he goes on again to do the Steelers of Dreams in the new series adventures, which plays mm. about with similar themes all over again. I think it's something he's quite interested in. Doctor Who then, yeah. Doctor Who now, yeah. how well, on earth we got here and the bumps along the way. It's weird to see what this would have been like 20 years ago. I bet it annoyed quite a lot of hardcore fans. And now it's like, we've had 11 monsters. We've had, we've had, he, you know, someone going, well, you know, uh, I, I get blowjobs off me, off me, uh, paving slab. Paving slab. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's, uh, they were out that Christmas, you I, know. I love, love, I love, love the monsters. And I guess in a similar way to this, it just shows this is, this is the same show that is Genesis of the Daleks and love and monsters and, I'm, I'm, I'm and crooked love, world. So it can monsters. be anything. Love and Monsters, that paving slab scene. I've made I'd have a problem in... with that joke, definitely. I've... Am I the only one watching it who didn't immediately think of blowjobs when that went out? Because I did that didn't even did occur you think of to kissing? me until I went on the forum <laughs> later on and somebody said, Oh god, they're talking about blowjobs in Doctor Who. He's even holding he's even oh. holding it in his lap. It literally looks like they've probably just finished. <laughs> Talk about inappropriate <laughs> sex in Doctor Who. So, yeah, so am I the only person who didn't go anyway. there? Is my brain just not wired that way? Is it just you lot being filthy? I don't know. <laughs> We've ruined sure. Doctor Who doing it. We've ruined Doctor Who. Do you know, I did wonder before we, I came on this call whether we could take this book with this cover and in any way intellectualise it. And I think somehow we've managed to achieve that. So well done, Jack. <laughs> well, I yeah. think the book itself is... is oh, it's is, a very you intellectual know, book. You, you, you see that cover and you don't But it doesn't like, look it, does it? The book itself is, is quite intellectual, so... Mm. Okay. Well... On to my favourite segment of the show then, and you guys came up with some great recommendations the first time around. Um, what are you going to recommend to people today? Let's go in the reverse order then. James? I am going to recommend The Glorious Dead. Oh, oh yes. yes. Which is um, the second in uh, the four-volume collection of Eighth Doctor comic strips from Doctor Who magazine, and the reason is, I reckon this is the most consistently brilliant run of Doctor Who in any medium ever. Now, hang on. Is it the run from the very first Paul McGann strip to the last so one? This, I've chosen the second book because I uh, think it's the best of the of the bunch, though there's not the a lot in it. The flood is pretty honest. incredible, isn't it? Um, yeah, I I, uh, I think all four volumes, though, I, I, I think that they give The Eighth Doctor a really incredible run um, with uh, story arcs to die for, and the, uh, mm. the greatest of which, to my mind, is The Glorious Dead, which acts in many different ways as a sequel to the TV movie. Yeah. Uh, the TV movie, which sort of doesn't really work on its own, it's written as a bit of a pilot and and goes nowhere. We 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 catch up with Grace in the first of the cartoons in this book, and then we find out what's happened. Sorry, spoilers to the master, 
and it all ties up beautifully and it ties up in uh, this constantly uh inventive and absolutely beautiful beautifully realized series of stories with brilliant cliffhanger after brilliant uh full page spread um i think that the, the work of martin garati the uh, the main artist in, in this time is is just off the scale brilliant and whilst i totally understand the commercial sense in the comic strip going color which it does after this volume there is something about the black and white art that I think yeah. is never matched again. And there is a point where they sort of go into a multiverse. The Doctor is, is sent through. I mean, I remember reading this at the time it was coming out in Doctor Who magazine and every month it was, it was the most thrilling thing um, to see these, these it t- take these unexpected directions. Uh, the, 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 there's a cliffhanger where the Doctor wakes up and it, and he's human and 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 he's sitting next he's sitting in a bed next to um grace um and she's saying honey what's the matter it's like he's dreamt the whole thing it 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 just constantly lands gut punch after gut punch and uh, things happen to characters that are surprising and distressing um it's it's a um a just a a continuous inventive uh wealth of um really doctor who-y stuff but on a scale that only the comic strip could do and 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 then sprinkled into them as well i mean put towards the end of this volume uh are are a couple of specials as well the adrian salmon drawn uh comics just incredible artwork it's the autonomy bug somewhere yeah so the autonomy bug which is Mm -hmm. it's one of the ones drawn by roger langridge gorgeous illustrated it so the other two is in here are, are tv action and um Happy Death Day. They Happy were both Death. anniversary, oh, just yes. one-offs. Yeah. Genuinely witty. I mean, the the you you could spend hours just pouring over the artwork. And the TV action is the one where they run through the BBC studios, and there are characters from Blue Peter and Grange Hill and Emus. There, you could just you could just go with a magnifying mm. glass through these pages. But the autonomy bug is is the same artist yeah. doing something really dark and really serious and very very moving. All those different robots, it was amazing. Yeah. I, I I know it's not in this volume, it, but it's later in the run. But one of the most shocking moments in Doctor Who I can ever remember seeing, reading, listening to is that bit in... It's it's one with lots of snow, I remember that. And at the end, Destry's Guardian turns around and claws her in the face oh, he in the most the shocking way. It's because... so terrifying. Yeah, yeah I, I remember that. I remember what reading the Eighth Doctor... Um, adventures in the comic strips um i actually there's a couple of years back there's a twitter thread i did on it i remember the glorious dead one of the things that i love about the glorious dead is that as you said there's cliffhanger after cliffhanger after cliffhanger but the cliffhangers don't pick up the following month they switch the action to somebody else for the next month and the glorious dead the end of one of those episodes of the glorious dead was the first time that i'd been reading the doctor who comic strip and I actually had to sit quietly for a few minutes afterwards because I could not believe what I saw. And it's the bit where Izzy has been narrating the destruction of Paradost. And at the end of it, she confronts Morningstar who says, and says, beat you. He says, congratulations, pulls out a TCE. And there's a shrunken Izzy at the bottom. God. And it's like, what the hell? And then next yeah. month, 
we go to what the doctor's we don't doing. See, we, we don't, don't see we Izzy don't. for another two months. Oh, and that whole, that whole chapter is a beautiful ex- experiment in it's, style as well. It's, it's all narrated by her. But, it's I mean, not afraid to do different things every week. No. Yeah. But the eighth, the, the, big, the biggest tra- impact sorry. that it's had on that had on me that comic strip was at the end of Oblivion. The plot wraps up with a couple of pages to go, and right at the end of one of the pages, Izzy says, "I'd like to go home now." and that was like wow and they give it two pages two whole pages to her departure doctor who magazine the comic strip because it had to tie in with what was going on on the television at some point because they tied in the seventh doctor ones with the virgin new adventures and so they couldn't do anything new with the characters for the first time it could give you a companion i mean they had sharon with the fourth doctor but they never really gave her a proper departure i think for the first time, you had a character and a companion who got an introduction. She got an arc. She went through that whole business, having her body switch with Destry and everything else. And there's some absolutely gorgeous, beautiful freak is a oh, beautiful it's, one. Isn't that just a wonderful piece of writing? And, and, it is gorgeous. Uh, 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 I, mean, uh, yeah, I know you said about it going to colour being um, a little bit detrimental to the comic strip in some respects. But that one uses so much black. Oh, they do it very well. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not knocking the color, the the, no. the color episodes either. But I do think there is something in the in the glorious dead, particularly mm. that that shows what you can do with I black agree. and white. I think the multiverse color. sequence in the glorious dead would have been oh, headache inducing had they tried that in color. Yes, but it's the glorious yeah. dead, the one that has the full page one of all the different universes. It's yes, sort of it done does. as a crisscross yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. it's amazing. Art. I think that would have been migraine inducing if they tried that in color. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, but yeah, to actually have a companion who had an entry, an arc, and then a departure, and to devote two whole pages of the comic strip to her departure. I mean, I yeah, I nearly cried. I mean, it's that interesting, you know, because at the at the same point in time, at one point you had three Eighth Doctor runs going on, competing, Big Finish audios, the books, mm. and the comic strips. And I think sort of people went in different camps. I think the smallest camp was probably yeah. The books. I, I, maybe that's one reason why I because because to me the Eighth Doctor is first and foremost the comics mm. from, and then I got the Big it's Finish the later on. And then, and then, and then that's why I'm enjoying. I'm going to enjoy like actually picking up on this parallel universe with the EDAs as well. But, but this is my wheelhouse. Is if we're including comics as books, then, then that's I've read a lot more Doctor Who comics than I have books. But I get to work with Martin Geraghty and talking of his black and white art. Wow! Oh, look at that. That's that's his that's his art for my Demons of Eden, which he gave me. Gorgeous. So, um, as a so he, you know, that got coloured, but um, but also there's a black and white version we printed as well. But and also I got to work with Adrian Salmon on my Sutek that's just come out as well. So you know, I've got to sort of these people from my childhood. I got to work with and they're amazingly lovely people. I never read the comic <laughs> strips when they were coming out in the magazine. I just they just mm. never interested me because comics were never my thing. And then I, I I'd run out of mm. Doctor Who, so I was like, okay, I'm going to start buying these collections and see what it's all about. Mm. One, you're right; these ones in particular just transported me. I just thought that run was well, uh, incredible storytelling. But but. Yeah. The, my biggest gripe going in was like, well, how the hell are you going to do? How are you going to do action in still images? How does that even work? And um, how Martin Geraghty, <laughs> is that how you say his name? Geraghty? Martin Geraghty, yeah. yeah how yeah. he expresses that with a couple of panels. It just constantly wowed me. I was co- a complete convert by the time I finished 
what was the first one? What's the very first one? The is the first Endgame. Endgame is yeah. the first volume. I was like, bring it on, and I ordered the rest. And my other half was like, oh Jesus, more expense. But you know, <laughs> what yeah. a great choice, James. That was a fantastic choice. Yeah, the the, the yeah, Doctor yeah. comic strip run is absolutely superb. Oh, yeah, unfortunately, yeah. <clears throat> Jason, you've got to live up to that now. Off you go. Okay. Well, I'm not going to do a comic strip, <laughs> although there is some. Uh, excellent artwork in it i'm gonna do cybermen oh, by david banks oh yes <laughs> you you <laughs> challenge accepted and you rose to it it has <laughs> also got glorious images in it it's got absolutely stunning artwork by andrew skilleter in it um and my copy has been signed by the cybermen um <laughs> i took it to utopia last year uh, and got that uh but th- i mean i bought this book when i was very early on in my in my fandom so it's in like 90 I think I got this 93 or 94 um and it is it's hard to actually classify what it is because on the one hand it has a whole section about the concept of cybermen which talks about cybernetics and and ancient um prosthetics and implicate and implants and things like that uh cybernetics in fiction it's got it it really stretches the boundaries a bit then it covers the Cybermen in Doctor Who, um, but it gives you a history of the cyber race through these archivists that he's created, uh, and basically just gives you the plot of the stories. But it also ties up how the different Cybermen that we see on the screen have a timeline. It kind oh, of creates Doctor a history Who of fans the Cybermen. Love a timeline, so, don't they? Yeah, and it kind of divides and proliferation, uh, cyber neomorphs, cyber mondasians, cyber telosians, etc. Jason, um, who's doing the art in that? Andrew Skilleter. Oh, no wonder it's so gorgeous. Mm. Yeah, and uh, and it, yeah, there's some great stuff. I mean, one of the things that it's easy to forget now. It's got some artwork of the sets and the set design from Tomb of the Cybermen, mm. which at the time was not available uh, when this book was first published. So, you know, it's got some really good stuff in it. Um, and I spent ages copying out the schematic pictures it's got of all the different Cybermen in it because that really appealed to me. Um, and yeah, it's a brilliant, brilliant book. Um and I love it. I, I read it cover to cover when I got it, and I've read it cover to cover many times since. Um, and David Banks just does a brilliant job with it. He really, you know, you 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 think sometimes these actors they go in, they do a job and everything else, and they, that's it. That's you know, he's the cyber leader in a few Doctor Who stories. Well, okay, fine. But he's really obviously taken this role and run with it and created this. And that's above and beyond the call of duty for any actor in any role. Oh, um, it's, the, the, you know, so. it's the work of an obsessive, though, isn't it? It's it, it it's got that slightly unhinged quality that 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 we that we love in Doctor Who, where he's gone, he's extrapolated so much from what he's been given. It's thoroughly researched, but then he's taken it another stage further. There's plenty of David Banks in there as well. Oh yeah, well David Banks is slightly unhinged. I'm convinced, having seen him <laughs> since, <laughs> since that's stage. come out, since the new series came back, we've had so many of these cash-in books now, the monsters and this and that, and it is basically just repeating what you see on the television. To have something like this that delves into the Cybermen uh, so so creatively, I think it's well well done. You did manage yeah. to at least match 
if not best. Yeah, I don't think we've had any <laughs> volumes since. I mean, we've had, as you say, we've had loads of tie-in volumes with the series, but I don't think we've had anything with the level of research, factual research plus fictional creativity that's gone into that book since. The Cybermen Volume 2 by Jason Thompson, coming soon. <laughs> I haven't got time for that, Joe. <laughs> if anyone could do it. Okay, Ian. Um, um, are you going to get an all-round cheer like the rest of us? Well, mine is to bring us all, all all the way up to date is Origin Stories, which Ooh. came out last year. Um, the reason I recommend this is because um, for my podcast, I just um, I just did a, I just did an episode. Well, just, it's not out yet, but just did just did an interview with Mark Griffiths, who's who's I he's a friend of mine anyway, but he um, and also one of our writers at Cutaway. But he um, he's just. At time of recording, it's just about to come out. His actual first novel, Fourth Doctor and Romana, Mark II, um, novel, which is the ever-changing man, if I've remembered his title right. Just a minute. Um, it's, uh, it is the ever-changing man, isn't it? I will... Uh, it's the self-made man, the ever-changing man. The self-made man is his novel, which uh, I haven't read yet. But this is... A series of short stories. Have you guys read it? Uh, Origin stories. No, no, no. It's um, it's a BBC book, um, obviously, but it's all companions and monsters. So you got Davros in it. You've got Clara. You've got uh, you've got um, but uh, you've got Joe. You've got you know from old classic and new. Um, and you've, Sophie Aldred has written one. Uh, so has Katie Manning. Um, and uh, and people. Uh, Sarah Daniels, Nikita Gill, uh, and and my friend Mark Griffiths, and he he uh, he, you know, they were all asked which which sort of period do you want to write, and he went for Sarah Jane. Um, and what I love about, I mean, I won't spoil it, but what I love about his story in particular is it starts off with Sarah Jane as a youngster listening to uh, John Smith and the Common Men, um, you know, as a sort of little. Uh, you know, as a as a callback to the unearthly child, so it sort of puts her in the same world as very firmly in the same world as Susan. Um, she was a child at the same time Susan was uh was you know living in living in Totters Lane. So it's just it's just a, but just just as a little just as a sort of modern modern uh, bringing who up to date. It's just a really really good bunch of little short stories. I think weirdly it does remind me of the brief encounters kind of thing from Doctor Who magazine. I used to really like that kind of uh, the granular nature of Doctor Who fandom that you could go, here's a story that's hardly science fiction, but it's just got enough in it because we know where these characters are going to go in the future or where they have been, depending where you meet them. But it's, yeah, I'd recommend it for all Doctor Who fans. <laughs> And the last recommendation from me is going to be Face of the Enemy by David A. McKinty, which is a very early past Doctor adventure, which takes a grain of an idea from the Claws of Axos, and that is the master and unit working together and makes a full-length book about it. So the third Doctor and Joe are off on an adventure for the entirety of the book, and it is unit facing a terrible disaster where the master, Roger Delgado's master, who's just fabulous anyway, has to step in and save the day. And what is great about it is it's like unit porn. You think about any <laughs> unit character, past, present or future, 
if they've not been in the show yet, then Brigadier Bambera's son's in there somewhere. You know, <laughs> if they've been in, the, they're all in there somewhere. It, it, McGinty loves Doctor Who continuity, and this is his one chance to sort of do a third Doctor book and throw everything in. It's really fun read. Um, it genuinely feels like a series seven stroke eight Doctor Who story. It puts Roger Delgado's master front and center, and he's smooth as hell in it. Uh, it's just really, really, really fun. And in a time when I think the past Doctor Adventures were, I'll use that word again, very hit or miss. It's its a really great read. I don't know if any of you guys have read it, but it's really fun. I haven't, but I rate him as a writer. Um, I think White Darkness is is one of the yeah. standout new adventures. He actually, he went on to do a number of really, I thought, really effective um, BBC books. But oh, did he do any other virgins? Yeah, um, First Frontier and Sanctuary. Oh, that's right. That was the first master one, wasn't it? First Frontier. Oh, spoilers. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> I think we've... 30 years ago. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We've gone from 20 to 30. Boys, thank you so much. That was, again, uh, a wonderful conversation. Um, I'm hoping, again, I can entice you back. I fancy taking us into Virgin territory next time. Yeah. I, I don't know. Talking about we're talking about books or something else, Joe? Because we never know with you. No, no. This is the one <laughs> podcast where I get to pretend to at least be mildly intellectual. So, Jason, so. you can be smutty. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Not a paving slab question. There's a good chance there will be some sex in there somewhere, or someone sort of wiping some semen out of their mouth, or something like that. You know what book I'm talking about, James. Know what you're getting with the new adventures. Yeah. Um, I just to ask you all though, do you all have them, or can you? No, unless it's Livermore, I don't have them. But um, are we all going to be uh, bidding for the dying days on eBay? Is that (laughs) yes? Not not unless you want a second mortgage. We ain't no. No. We'll we'll find a way. But uh, thank you again for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Been a joy as usual. No, no, wait, I'm so sorry. I was going to go then, but I'm very quickly going to throw this to Ian very oh. quickly oh, to talk yeah. about his crowdfunder. Oh, How's yeah. Well, well, it's not my crowdfunder technically, but it's Cutaway Comics as crowdfunder, so uh, launched by Gareth. But uh, obviously I was tweeting like crazy from Cutaway Bunker's uh, uh, account. Um, but, yeah, we, we it's uh, it's for a prequel to Inferno, written by Gary Russell, um, with art by John Ridgway. Um, and so obviously we knew it was going to be quite popular amongst Who fans. And we've got a bit of a we've got a sort of bit of a rep now. So people like what we do. Um, but just yeah, the idea I've I've read the full script because I'm technically Gary Russell's editor, which is just mad to me. Um because he doesn't really need an editor, but that's technically what I am. And he um but yeah so this first thing is a prequel to uh, to Inferno and it starts in 1940 and it goes all the way up to I think the day before the Doctor arrives uh, as the world's about to end as as, a, as penetration zero is almost reached um, <laughs> steady on um, uh, and also there's there's ultimately going to be after this there's going to be a three book three book thing about after the Doctor leaves so wow. Gary's, Gary's initial idea before we had the idea for the prequel was the doctor was right but he was off by six weeks so the earth's got six weeks and it's the whole continent spanning thing and it's got chin leave from mind of evil in it because we've got permission to both of don horton's things so 
Chinley exists in our world, whatever our world is in the Pertwee universe. And so obviously she exists over there as well in the uh in the Inferno world. Um so it's it's just gonna be huge. But this this particular Kickstarter, it was just really it's really gratifying because we had these stretch goals and we thought, well, mate, are we gonna get to thirteen? And suddenly we got to thirteen grand. And so the stretch goal was a six 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 page extra thing from Gary about Chin Lee. And then the next goal, just twenty four hours away before the end of the Kickstarter, was uh, was for a novella from Gary, um, uh, again set in the Mind of Evil sort of uh, universe, um, and somehow through lots of tweeting and just generally people being awesome, we went sailed past fourteen grand as well. So it was just it was just lovely, but uh, I was just there going, "Am I pissing? Are we just pissing everyone off?" But every time we do one of these Kickstarters. We always get people going, I didn't see anything. And if they're throwing their money at you, they're not pissed off, all right? No, no, but some people some people are pissed off because they haven't been able to. So you always think you always think you're oversaturating Twitter, but Twitter is so you, you're just a drop in the ocean every tweet. So you, every single time there seems to be somebody saying, Oh, I didn't see that, I would have backed that. And it's like we just sent out a tweet tweet about every ten minutes for the last twenty four hours. But for some so- reason see them <laughs> Say, saying that david a mckinsey likes continuity i know gary he loves a bit of continuity as well these are going to be an yeah. absolute treat I don't uh and it's his absolute favorite um doctor who story i think but definitely his favorite pertwee yeah absolutely oh. i mean I, I i i think it's probably mine as well i love inferno i love inferno so much it's brilliant <laughs> congratulations yeah. i saw that i saw that that total going up and up and up I was, it was an incredible it was achievement. mad it was yeah it was mad it was just a poor gary has now got oh great i've got loads of extra i've rate. got to work now yeah yeah you're <laughs> get work. on with it russell oh. come on yeah. yeah careful what you wish for gary <laughs> james ian jason thank you very much yeah thanks so much thank Joe. you for having us thank you it's been great